Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Pen and pat in hand. You wanna 
beat it early and beat the caravan. People storm in the gate to get a plate. The lines packed like the happy land. Either open up with the latest cuts or them rat tools. They're bumped by the latest trucks. From 9 to 11, we do it in the dark. Like we used to do it in the park for the most part. From the very second that the show starts. You witness it compose off, think Mozart, huh? The love received so far has been so hard. There's a few dudes to run, but they would do as they shot. Man, they so saw. Don't be thrown off any so law. Avoid them at all costs, like raccoons or skunks. But back to the regular scheduled program. The program is sponsored by Seven Heaven. What else in hell can you get an open line to heaven at 11-11? Emerge at the other end of the meditation portals and elevated walk tools. Even some abort tools. Any questions, comments, or concerns, press one. To everyone else, thanks for attending another session. I'm pleased to teach, but it's an honor to learn. Certainly, courtesy of KTL University. Oh, please don't be frightened. I'm terribly sorry about this. You are. Peace, peace, peace to you and yours, peace to you and yours. This is No Delay Radio, and you are now rocking with the best. Yes, indeed, this is your host, Brother Blue Pill. I very soon will be joined by my co-host, Brother Red. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of KTO Radio. Please, family, get comfortable. Get comfortable. Uh, you are home. You're with family. You know what I'm saying? Definitely settle in. Tonight we have a very... Very, very special episode and program to bring you, okay? Uh, for the family also, um, for the New York area family, you know what I'm saying, those that are out in the elements, please make sure that you are careful out there. The brick, the, the hawk, should I say, is on full blast. The brick outside, it is crazy. Crazy out there right now. All right? So please make sure that you are taking care of yourself and definitely making sure that you're protecting yourself from the elements. Me, myself, you know, I am broadcasting live tonight from a very, very special location. I'm in the building. I am at Sun Kofa Cafe. Okay? Sun Kofa Cafe here in the BX. New York City BX family, we told you that we had a um, a opening, a grand opening that took place here this weekend, this past weekend. The family came through. Shout out to the KTL family that showed up to this wonderful, wonderful opening. The brother has created an oasis, a gem right in the middle of the desert, you know what I'm saying, right in the middle of Pilon, of, of the Bronx. All right? And the location is... 1789 Southern Boulevard, all right? This is on Boston Road and 174th Street. It's a beautiful borough of the Bronx, my birthplace, okay? So definitely shout out to the family. Shout out to Sankofa. They have seven having Seamoss on deck. Shout out to Jack Conscious, you know what I'm saying? The brother is operating the smoothie section. He got the smoothie and shake situation on lock. So please, family in the BX, you know, I, I know that they like to say that the Bronx is a food desert. 
or what have you, but that's no longer the truth. They have a viable source of very, very, very good food. They have a beautiful staff here, um, organic cakes, pies. You know, they got food. They got the smoothies. They got tonics. You know what I'm saying? Anything that you could think of. They got the good water in the building. They got the sorrow. They got the sea moss. They got the peanut punch. You know, they got it all over here at Sankofa Cafe. All right, Boston Road on 174th Street. And it's also a cyber cafe. It's an internet cafe. You feel me? So you can bring your laptop through. You can have meetings here. We're definitely going to be having some functions very soon here as well because it's a nice-sized venue, the atmosphere is beautiful, and the people are even more beautiful. You dig? So with no further ado, family, let me go to the line and bring in my co-host, all right? Brother Red, call it from the 347. Peace. Peace, peace, peace. What's good? Yeah. I'm in the building. Telling them about circle. Welcome to Know the Ledge Radio. You are now rocking with the best. Yes, indeed. Your co-host, Brother Reptile. Did I just hear you say that the Brother Jack Consciousness was in the building? Yeah, Jack Consciousness, he hold down the smoothie section. He ain't here right now. Oh. But, you know, that's what I was rocking out with this weekend, yeah. The bedroom. Okay, there. I didn't even that. You know? That's what's up. That's what's up. Shout out to the family over there at Sankofa. I, I was over there earlier. Uh, they're doing good. They're doing big things. They're doing some good okay. things over there. I like that. Yeah. Your family on the other side of the store, it's a gift shop, and the brother got conscious DVDs, you know what I'm saying, a beautiful book selection, and just an incredible array of conscious ornaments, like a comedic chessboard, you know, all sorts of different artifacts that you can adorn your house with, uh, Buddha heads, vases, just Things to beautify your 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 personal space, you know. Yeah. Perfect things that you, if you might want to put something together, you know, as a gift, a gift to your loved ones. They got a wonderful array of things. They got pictures, you know, framed pictures or what have you. It's a beautiful establishment, like I said. Beautiful people in the community that are making a difference, doing something that's not being done. Okay, creating a wave that will have ripple effects. You know what I'm saying? So definitely if you get a chance, if you're in the BX, shout out to um my homie too, Jamal from the BX. You know what I'm saying? He came through KTL family. Um right. shout out to Aaron. Shout out to Sister Talibur. You know? Sister Talibur drinks is here as well for the family to know about Sister Talibur. And her uh, the array of flavors, her beautiful drinks, they could definitely oh. come through and get some of them drinks there in the building. All right. So go yeah, seven ahead and more. That's enterprising over there. That's what's up. Yeah, we enterprising. That's what's so up. So family, doubt. you know what I mean? Yeah, family. Like, I'm just, you know, I, I remember building with the brother in, like, 2010, and he spoke of, his vision of creating the juice bar and expanding his store and, um, you know, basically franchising. And now, uh, as you can see, you know, his dreams have come into fruition. So at this point, it's on us 
as a community or a network, however you want to define yourself, you know what I'm saying, or an industry, you know, whatever title fits you, it's at this point that we have to go out and support our own. You know what I mean? It's right there next to the train station, 174, two train on the five train, or you could get there via vehicle um, going down Boston Road or Southern Boulevard and um, definitely, you know, uh, patronize brothers and sisters that are in the community. And they've been in, they're in, they've, they've legends in the conscious community, the brother and his other brothers and their wives, they've been in the community for decades, you know what I'm saying? So it's only right that we uh, keep their establishment um, functioning in a, in, a, in a very respectful manner. So definitely big ups to everybody that's involved in that project. And I will I will spread the word. I will make it my business to spread the good word. Oh, for sure. It's good with you, though, man. How's every, how was your weekend? My weekend was beautiful. Right. My weekend was beautiful. Oh, as well, family that's in the chat, family that's on the phone, family that's listening to this, we want to promote this as a beautiful show. You know what I'm saying? We have a beautiful guest, Brother Umar is back in the building. If you don't mind, if you can update your Facebook status and put the link to the show, tell them you're now rocking with the best on KTL. You could even change your picture to, you know, the beautiful poster that we put together for tonight's show. All of that, all of that, you know what I'm saying, is big. That definitely will help you get the word out, you know what I'm saying, get the people in the building, get them under this tent tonight so the brother can deliver the necessary dissertation that he has to to enlighten the family to the information that he has, which is in its proper context to come today or tonight for that matter, right after what I saw yesterday on TV. And that was, you know, the transfiction of Barack Obama's second term inauguration. Barack I'm not going to talk politics. Excuse me? Barack What's your name, young man? Barack Hussein Obama. There you go. <laughs> you know, and for anybody that's been following the Law 44 thread, it was a Law 44 bonanza last night, or yesterday for that matter. You know, even this weekend, it was just continuous. I ain't going to run through everything um, on this particular show. To point out, I got a post on Facebook where I listed everything, how they was banging on them fours, hard body. Um, but, you know, the content of the particular speech and what the conversation has inspired by way of his inauguration and how people are feeling as, quote-unquote, citizens of the republic, I think should make for a very interesting conversation tonight with what the brothers bringing forth. It's right on time, as always, you know? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, outside of that, it, it, was, it was just a glorious weekend in regards to getting some things done. Like I said, you know, the majority of my time and my days have been spent here in Sankofa getting the good word out and just meeting and greeting the people in the neighborhood, you know, I was totally, totally blown away on Sunday. You know, I had met two of our enlightened minds 
They were two youngsters. One was 11, uh, a young lady, and her younger brother was six. I believe he was six. I'm telling you, family, the babies that are out here, we have to make more of a concerted effort to do what we feel is necessary to protect their genius because there's some geniuses out here. These babies, these indigos, they're ready. You know what I mean? They just, I won't even say what they need is the proper guidance because they have the guidance. And I won't even say necessarily that they need the protection because they are guided, you know? It's either you get out of their way or you lend a helping hand. Just support them, you know, just support them. Give them a, a, a ear. That's what they can utilize the most is your time and your ear. Hear them out because they got theories. They got all sorts of stuff they want to expound upon, and I just spend the majority of my of my day just listening to them just build. And they was telling me about an array of different things. The The young child, the young boy, he studies insects. So he was giving me a full breakdown of the insect kingdom. I'm talking about an immaculate explanation of what goes on in the insect kingdom. Then his sister started telling me about her um her you know, her abilities. She has audio clairvoyance and she has um extrasensory skills. So she was telling me about, you know, the different entities that she sees and while we was talking, she's like, Look, one just popped up and, you know, it's cool for a child to have an imagination, but it's something different when a child has the gift of sight and the child has the gift of sight. And I suspect that there are many children out there that have these particular gifts. You feel me? Um, we just have to we have to make it feel very comfortable for them to have these conversations because a lot of them have stories that they want to tell. They just have to feel that comfort zone where they could open up and express themselves to be like, look, this is what's happening in my life and it's real. Because we started dealing with certain things and we have created this energy bubble where we are superficially dealing, not us per se, but the people as a whole. You know, as we're touching upon things and dealing with things, it became real for the seeds that came after us. Now this is what, you know, they are dealing with. Some people jump in and some people jump out. These babies don't have that option. You know what I'm saying? They are branded with this consciousness. Okay. It's real for them. They're ready for the next thing already. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to share that. Um, let me do this real quick, all right, because we are definitely embarking upon a time that we want to open up the line and bring in our guests. Let me bring in our third co-host, you know what I'm saying, the brother KT, the Octagree, talking about young geniuses, you know, and the father of some Brilliant seeds, some brilliant, beautiful indigo children. Call it from the 404-492. Peace, peace. Yes, sir. What's up, what's up, family? How y'all doing? Get excited every time I hear your voice, man. What's the deal? Me too, man. How y'all doing, man? You know, I've been thinking about y'all all week and all this 44 popping all everywhere I look. That's all I see, man. That inauguration was was just everywhere. They they just went all the way in, didn't they? I saw senators asking Jay-Z for his autograph. I was tripping. No. (laughs) Bro, I just, what was this, 10 minutes ago on the way home, I stopped into the local deli to pick up, you know, something to uh, snack on. 
and I glanced right. over to my right, and I noticed the New York Post has on their cover, right? Like, out of all of the things, out of all of the things that they could have posted, it says the first couple, and in parentheses it says, well, almost. Paul yeah, Paul man. Beyonce, Jay-Z at inaugural. Now I'm saying this. This is a Negro for Marcy. Is it that yeah. serious? <laughs> I'm saying, I'm man, really... he's the Sag. He's the Sag, man. He's the Sag. That's that 44, man. It ain't no joke. Same thing with Barack. It's hard. It's, it's, it's just real deal. It's the energy, man. It, it got to be the energy. It can't be anything else but that. And, but see, uh, that, that, that's, that's Hollywood. That's how. That's exactly why I'm here. Ladies and gentlemen, let me let everybody know. I want to give thanks out to all the people who have been supporting the the onset of Hollywood Decoded since last week. Um, the sales is rolling in. People are downloading and buying DVDs like crazy. Um, okay. We opened up the Hollywood uh, Decoded Facebook account, so now y'all can go ahead and, and like us on Facebook. I'm posting mad information, so for, for anybody who still ain't seen the movie and, you know, they don't want to because they're not sure of the information in there. I've been putting up little, little you know, things here and there so you can see what's going on in the film um, and little previews, you know, what you can expect on the DVD. Um, just, you know, just a sight of information and, and just showing about this energy. You know, I want you all to know that this film is, is a breakthrough, and I know a lot of people are really, like, throwing stones at it, but I have to honestly say, if it wasn't for Django being released, the amount of information that I've attained in the past, like, three weeks about my ancestors and about my people would have never occurred if it wasn't for me um, breaking this movie down. And one of the main individuals that, that I've come across since I broke this movie down has been Martin Delaney. I've never heard of him before. My father may have told me about him when I was real little, but in all my conscious tapes and all the Pan-African lectures I've heard, I've never heard of Martin Delaney to this day. And I'm hoping Umar, you know, I'm not going to be on to ask him, so I'm hoping one of y'all posed the question to Umar about Martin Delaney, but he's who Marcus Garvey studied. He read his book. At the time, Django was saving Broomhilda in the film. In 1858, Martin Delaney was going back and forth from here to Liberia, establishing treaties with our tribes and our indigenous brethren. He was mm. creating um, commerce between South America and Central America. His book that he wrote was talking about how we need to get the hell up out of the United States and move to South America and move to Central America. That's where... The government and the structure is built for us. That's where we're supposed to be at. And the dude, was, he's the first uh, uh, person, black <clears throat> black individual, to be admitted in Harvard Medical. Um, he's the first major in, in the Army, um, amongst so many other things. He's the first black nationalist over here. We talk in the 1850s, man. And I never wow. heard of this cat. So his book is online. Uh, there's some PDFs where you can download it for free. Or you could buy it on Amazon. Just Google Martin Delaney. Um, but also, DangoDecoded.com, HollywoodDecoded.com. Go there, get the DVD. I break down Martin Delaney and the Black Riders and John Brown and how they connect 
into the whole concept of Django and film and the movie. We got slides. We got the jazz in the background. We got the crystal clear audio. So, you know, when y'all get a chance to, please visit that site. Like us on Facebook. And this is just the first of a billion. You know, we got more coming, y'all. We got more coming. So I just wanted to go ahead and make that announcement. Say what? For World War Z. Um, oh yeah, you know that's coming. They yeah, they they keeping you busy this whole year. So we just oh yeah, they, they put me to they put me to work. I appreciate they it. Put you, they like, <laughs> you think you got this? All right, we gotta throw something at you. Hey, I'm gonna yo. just let you do what you do. I'm gonna be coming out with trilogies at one time, but got to. That's I'm it. That's it. So yeah, I just want to say thanks to the people for the support thus far. And for every anybody who hasn't come through to check us out, please feel free to check us out and spread the word. Remember, all these proceeds are being invested in the Gollywood so we can start creating films. You know, Red and Blue, Arc 3, A.A. Rashid, you know, we're going to be up on that screen, you know, as well as the youth and everybody coming up so that we can instill the proper images and reinstate our culture back into mainstream media. You hear what I'm saying? That's the whole goal and point of this thing. Yes, indeed. And shout out to the brother A. Rashid for a phenomenal presentation. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I've been (laughs) listening to nonstop. The eargasms. Yeah, man. I've been listening to the eargasms. Word. You know what I mean? I want to get a brother a monumental shout out for holding it down. And. Just doing what he does, man, you know what I'm saying, like effortlessly, you know, just disseminating information um, on multiple levels that many people, that that anyone could benefit off of. So um, thank you, Brother Rashi, for that plate of food. Everyone who contributed, Black Dot, KT, Blue, you know what I mean, the callers, all of y'all were phenomenal. And um, well, not, uh, not all of them. Not all of them. The <laughs> oh, real quick, real quick. While we talking about hip hop, let me just shout out to Kendrick Lamar, son. I've I've had the honor of finally listening to a uh, uh, good kid, Mad City. Mad City. And I didn't have my mind blown, brother. Yeah, man, that's a true artist right there. Oh my goodness, man! That that bitch don't kill my vibe. I I can't let that one go. That's my new anthem. That and I'm sorry. <laughs> Them two right there, man. Even with all of this, uh, all this cesspool out here and all this dilution out here, man, that the hip hop still be shining through nonetheless. So I got I got to shout out to them cats and tell them thank you. Did you hear Did you hear ASAP's album? Nah, not yet. I'm one, I'm taking it one step. I'm an old man, son. I'm taking it one step at a time. <laughs> okay. All right, Do so. it one by one. Um, that's one by next. One. That's next. That's next. All right. I'm on, I'm on uh, a good kid right now. Let's start moving into the program, tonight's program. That's it. Well, I'm, I'm going to bring Steve Bow Wow, y'all, and, and, and get on the listening end. But uh, just, just all thanks to, uh, to Brother Omar, man, and thank you all for the opportunity. Indeed. All right. All right so, peace. brother, love you. Peace. Okay, family, again, this is uh, KTL Radio. You can follow us on Twitter under the handle KTL Radio. Find us on Facebook, Nola Ledge TV. Also on YouTube under Nola Ledge TV. All right. Again, family, welcome to tonight's program. This is Nola Ledge Radio presents The Illusion. 
of inclusion, the myth of black-white equality in America, okay? So we welcome back Dr. Umar Abdullah-Johnson, also known as Dr. Umar Ifatunde, for a compelling discourse on the illusion of inclusion, the myth of black-white equality in America. Does it extend further than status? Is it an intrinsic part of Western culture? Is it the basis of white supremacy in the Western world? What does Barack Obama's second term say about race relations domestically and abroad? Furthermore, we need to be done to progress in the midst of systematic disenfranchisement. Dr. Umar Johnson, the author of recently released Psychoacademic Holocaust, has recently returned from Liberia and has some vital information to share from his journeys abroad. The brother term, the Prince of Pan-Africanism, is also currently touring the country in conjunction with his riveting appearance in Hidden Colors 2. Okay? We will catch up with the doctor and discuss this and many more topics. All right, family, with no further ado, we present to you caller from 215-215-989. Peace. The doctor on the line. Peace and love, Kills. The honor to be back on the show. This is Dr. Umar Johnson. <laughs> Peace, right. Doc. Peace. Peace to the doc. Welcome back to Know the Ledge Radio. It's been a while. Uh, we've been keeping it warm for you over here. And, uh, you know, we miss you over here. How's everything been, man? We've been watching you. We've been doing a lot of monumental things. We want to first and foremost salute you for the uh, for your effort. You know what I mean? Your relentless effort of blazing that trail in the uh, in the conscious community. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, I appreciate the support. I appreciate the support. New year, new things. Uh, the book is coming out: Psychoacademic Holocaust, the Special Education and ADHD War Against Black Boys. My first book. Um, looking forward to the release of that. I'll be down in New York City this coming Wednesday, a week from tomorrow, last day of the year, excuse me, last day of the month. Uh, I'll be spending that with Queen Mother Maddox and Attorney Alton Maddox over at the United African Movement, UAM, 1068 Fulton Street. Brothers and sisters, come on out. I believe they get started at 630 this coming Wednesday, so I'm looking forward to that. The book will be out on the first Anyone who hasn't ordered it yet can do so on my website, drumarjohnson.com, and if you do so before release date, February 1st, you'll also get a free copy of the Psychoacademic Holocaust Companion DVD that goes along with the book. But what I'm trying to do in this book, brothers and sisters, is I'm trying to give our people a concise manual of how special education and ADHD and psychiatric medication is being used against our children and also what we can do about it. I get phone calls and emails every day, all day. My voicemail is filled up now because parents are constantly calling looking for advice. So I'm hoping that with this book they will have the power in their hand to fight for their child, to keep them off medicine, keep them out of special ed, keep them away from the mental disorder diagnoses. So that's the purpose of that book, to give our people a weapon that they can use when they're not able to access me directly so they can fight for their children even when they have no one else to turn to. Indeed, indeed. That is uh, 
That's definitely something that is very much needed. And, um, you know, once again, we applaud you for your efforts, you know what I'm saying, in helping <clears throat> to aid the, uh, the parents. Question, are in the book, are you listing the, uh, the different drugs, the different pharmaceuticals that they have been prescribing to, the, uh, to, to our children? I'm listing the major ones, the most popular ones. Uh, there's so many psychiatrics out there that if I listed them all, probably wouldn't have enough space for any text to interpret what's happening. So I do list the major psychiatric medications along with the side effects for them. Excellent, excellent. Indeed. No doubt, man. I will definitely look out for that book. I will be one of the first uh, purchasers of the book, and I'm definitely going to ring the alarm and let everybody know that this is a must. This is something that they must have in their uh, in their house or, you know, whoever has children, even if they don't have children, this is something that we need as just, you know, just for source purposes so we can take this information and bring it to where it needs to uh, be brought. You know what I mean? Um, not a problem, not a problem. Just to let folks know, 10 days left in January, they want that companion DVD for free and they need to pre-order the book before the first. They can always get it after the first, but there will be a cost associated with the DVD. But if they pre-order the book on the website prior to February the 1st, they'll get the DVD for free. But enough with that. We definitely want to get into the topic tonight, uh, white supremacy's new clothes, the myth of a post-racial America, the illusion of inclusion. So I'm sorry for cutting you off. Go ahead, my brother. Oh, not at all, brother. Not at all. I just wanted to um, say... If you can drop a link, uh, tell them where they can find the uh, where can they pre-order the book so they be able to get the DVD as well. Uh, certainly, they can order the book on my website, drumarjohnson.com, D-R-U-M-A-R-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. If you're ordering from your cell phone, all you have to click on is order book or purchase book. The cell phone site. If you go to the full website on your computer then you want to click on shop, the same page you go to when you order my DVDs. That's the same page you go to when you order the book. So you go to the website, you click on shop, then you click on the book, and you place your order. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, briefly, can you, before we even get into the topic of tonight, sure. I know I uh, know that you returned from a trip to the motherland. Do you want to briefly uh, just give the family an update about our brothers and sisters uh, and the conditions? Uh, certainly. I got an opportunity to go to Liberia uh, for the first time, West Africa. Uh, for those who don't know the history of Pan-Africanism, Liberia was the Mecca for all Pan-Africanists up until Marcus Garvey's death and Kwame Nkrumah's rise to the presidency of Ghana. Uh, once Kwame Nkrumah liberated Ghana in 1957, that's when the uh, shift of uh, Pan-African operations swung from Liberia to Ghana. But up until 1957, for more than 150 years, it was Liberia that was the Pan-African hub. Uh, that's where so many of the forefathers of Pan-Africanism went and traveled. I know the brother earlier had spoke about Martin Delaney. And for those of y'all who've heard me, you know I regularly speak on Martin Delaney. That's nothing new. 
uh, for me. Martin Delaney co-edited the North Star newspaper with my ancestor, Frederick Douglass. He was also one of the first black masons. He was an inventor, one of the first black men to be nominated for vice president of the United States, first uniform officer in the Civil War, one of only three blacks who had the opportunity to meet one-on-one with Abraham Lincoln, uh, first black to attend Harvard Medical School, but he was put out of the medical school after the white students protested against him being there. Uh, so there's so much to be said about Martin Delaney, author of several books. It wasn't Liberia primarily that Martin Delaney was um, looking to build a community of expatriates. It was Nigeria. It was in Nigeria that he actually was uh, given some land by a king there to help resettle African people. But by the time he got back to America, the Civil War had kicked off, and he wanted to organize blacks to fight in the Civil War, so he never was able to get back over to the continent and finish his work. He did visit Liberia because the other Pan-Africanists, uh, he wasn't the first Pan-Africanist. He was one of the first, along with Bishop uh, Alexander Crummel, also Henry Highland Garnett, who's buried in Liberia. I went to the uh, grave site where Henry Highland Garnett is buried, but I wasn't allowed to go in there. For those of you who know the immediate history of Liberia, you know that they were engaged in a civil war that lasted approximately 12 years, a civil war that was engineered by the United States of America. And as a result of that civil war, so many lost their lives so that when people died, the families would, you know, automatically bury them in the cemetery right on top of pre-existing graves. So I met with one of the, the brothers who was in charge of the cemetery there, and he said that he's going to stay in contact with me because they have to do a thorough cleaning out of that cemetery. They have bodies stacked on top of bodies stacked on top of bodies. So that's a major undertaking for the Liberian government to see to it that all those brothers and sisters who had their lives taken from them during the Civil War receive a proper burial. But while I was there, I got the opportunity to speak, University of West Africa, uh, some other events also got an opportunity to build with Pan-Africanists in Liberia, some Garveyites and other brothers and sisters who are just simply conscious but really haven't found their way to Pan-Africanism yet, and just other brothers and sisters who were interested and seeing how we can work with each other across the Atlantic Ocean. So Africa is definitely ready for Africans from the West to go back home, from Canada, from England, from the Caribbean, and from America. One of the things I did not like was that the uh, missionary Christianity that the missionaries brought 500 years ago, uh, even before yeah. colonization started, is still well-trenched in Africa. Unfortunately, I had one brother tell me, you know, that he – said that the white man, you know, God sent white man, sent the white man to Africa to bring us Christianity. And had it not been for the white man coming to Africa, we would have not been saved. So that Christian ethos is still very much alive and well, not just in Liberia, but all throughout Africa. I've seen it in other places I've been, Nigeria, South Africa, Malawi, Ethiopia, Senegal. It's in other places as well. But they're ready. So some of the things we're looking at doing through my organization, Team Pan-African, we're looking at trying to uh, work with the brothers and sisters in Liberia to try to build a uh, full-service movie studio, also a full-service family center. And personally, I'm looking at building, helping some of the brothers build a nightclub there. I'm not into nightclubs, but the young people there need something to do as opposed to hanging out on the street. And there's also a lot of money in that because music is very popular in Liberia, so we're going to look at doing a positive nightclub to actually raise money to fund some of the other initiatives that we want to undertake. So a lot's going to be going on. They were also looking at doing a Pan-African concert in Liberia in the next two years where we bring a lot of the original classical hip-hop artists 
uh, to Liberia for a massive fundraising concert. So that's just what we're doing in Liberia, some other projects in Nigeria as well as South Africa. So it's Pan-Africanism of Parish. I know that's the square that I stand on. Uh, everything comes back to Pan-Africanism, at least for me. It's about the global African unification and push. None of us can fix this problem by ourselves. We have to do it on an international scale. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's excellent, brother. I, you know, I'm, I'm filled with joy at the result of, you know, you know, because often in the community, one of the most uh, popular statements is, you know, it's too much talking. What are they doing? What are you guys doing? You know, it's it, it tends to come from people that are not doing anything. And um, yes, indeed. You know, I'm it comes from people who are not doing anything, and it and it comes from a mind that says, I'm not going to help, but I'm going to hold you accountable. But and I'm that's a problem that we as African people judge. have. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, that's indeed. a very big problem that we have, uh, not just in the conscious community. You have it amongst black people, period. We're still waiting for a knight in shining black armor to ride up on a white horse and save us from our situation. We have to save ourselves, and this work has to be done collectively. There is no I in team. There is no I in team. Everybody has a place in it, and everyone has to participate in it. The egos have to be checked at the door. The uh, excessive capitalism, the pursuit of money over progress has to be checked at the door. There's a whole lot of behaviors that are anti-African in scope that have to be dealt with, and we can't be afraid to hold people accountable for, you know, whatever role they play and keeping us from making any forward progress. None of us are, are perfect. All of us are going to fall short at one point or another. We want to be careful not to just criticize each other, but constructive criticism is very important because we're only going to be able to move forward as if we hold everybody accountable. I have to be held accountable just as much as other people. In fact, I might even have to be held more accountable. Uh, for the last two years, I've been the most requested speaker in the conscious community, and with that comes a large responsibility. If people is calling my number and flying me all across the world to come and hear me speak, then there's a certain obligation that comes with that. And one of the biggest things that I have to work on, and I think all the brothers and sisters in the conscious community have to work on, and that is keeping our ego in check. Obviously, when you got thousands of YouTube videos and DVDs and, you know, people showing you a lot of love, sometimes that can go to your head. So one of the things that I've been doing the more and more and the bigger that I get is I've been praying more, meditating more, fasting more, dealing with my agoons and my orisha, dealing with the spirits, dealing with the most high more and more because I know that if I ever allow that thing to go to my head, then I just became a failure. You know, I'm just a vessel. I'm just a vessel. You know, this is not me doing this. That's just the pain and the pent-up frustration of my ancestors going on three, 400 years who speak through me. So any blessings I have as an orator, any blessings I have as a psychologist, educator, pan-Africanist, or political scientist is only because I've been blessed by the Most High and that I am protected by my ancestors in the Orisha. So I know this is not me, but I'm just a vessel. Indeed, brother. Indeed. Good to hear you even acknowledge that. You know what I'm saying? You know. And, um, I mean, it, it is, it is. It's just, I'm glad that you acknowledge it because it's something that needs to be acknowledged in the community. You know, uh, one of the reasons that many of us in the community have a um, problem moving forward at the pace that we should be moving forward 
is because of competition, uh, very, very much overblown egos, and, um, you know, a lot of lower self uh, energy, such as jealousy and envy, that basically has invaded, you know what I mean, the good works that a lot of the brothers and sisters are doing. It almost reminds me of many of the struggles that our ancestors, the great ones, went through. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it definitely, it definitely, uh, it, it takes, it takes, you know, it takes very mature and very uh, centered individuals to carry this, uh, this mission forward. You know what I'm saying? So, yes. Uh, by any chance, did you get to view the inauguration uh, of Barack Obama? Uh, I saw clips of it. I did see some clips of it. A lot of it just basically seemed like the same nonsense. He was spewing the first time that he had gotten elected, the first inauguration speech. You know, I did yeah. hear him definitely appeasing the uh, immigrants and appeasing the homosexuals. I did notice that. You know, he alluded to slavery, and he alluded to Dr. King, never mentioning his full name, but um, it's the same old nonsense as before. And one of the biggest problems that I'm seeing amongst our community, African people overall, even in the conscious community to some extent, is a lot of people who are being duped into believing, even after four years of nothingness, duped into believing that Obama's presidency somehow means something to black people. I was engaged in a conversation yesterday with elders, you know, and it really hurts my heart when elders also fall for the nonsense. And you ask them what is going to be the practical gain of Obama having been a president. No one can give one practical benefit for blacks as a result of Obama's presidency. But what I keep hearing is a psychological benefit. I keep hearing people say, well, the fact that there's a black family in the White House psychologically means something to black people. In what way? Because if you're saying that it's a psychological benefit, and all psychological benefits ultimately materialize into a physical benefit, how have we been made better by our children or ourselves seeing a black family in the White House? School dropout rates haven't gone down. Drug addiction hasn't gone down. Mass incarceration hasn't gone down. Jobs haven't went up. Black business ownership hasn't went up. So to say that there's a psychological benefit with no material, no material proof that there is a psychological benefit is, again, wishful thinking. And at the heart of white supremacy, the strength of white supremacy, the eternal benefit of white supremacy is the fact that they can influence black people to have faith in their ability to change. Now, we know white supremacy doesn't change, but the fact that they can influence people who have been calling themselves nationalists and revolutionaries for 20, 30, 40 years, the fact that they can make them say that times are getting better without struggle because of Obama clearly shows the power of white supremacy and how it continues to exert a very strong effect over the African psyche. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean that is a that's an excellent observation, and um, it's something that I've, I've as well noticed in our people. You know, what I'm saying that they have settled 
ultimately they settle for less. And, yes, they have uh, went ahead and drank the Kool-Aid, okay? And it's like you said, when you look at the conditions of our people, you know, and it's easy for anybody that wants to take a trip back into time because of the inauguration that took place yesterday. All you have to do is to tap into the memory bank and go back into the inauguration four years ago. Look at where we were as a people. Look at our condition. Look at where we were in entertainment. You know what I'm saying? Now, you'll have some Negroes that say, well, at least we got the Django. And it's like, you know, where have we gone? What what, what milestones have we, you know, what, what have we even accomplished as a people? We didn't even get a conversation, we, we didn't even get the chance to have a conversation with this so-called president over four years. He didn't even converse. He didn't even conversate to the quote-unquote minority or black community, whatever we want to call it. There was no conversation. There's a murder rate in Chicago right now that um, ever since the new year started, it's already at about 40, Okay with about 40% of that being children under 16 years old. This is the state that Rahm Emanuel, who is his secretary, his, uh, his chief of staff, and this is where he was the congressman for, okay? This is the same place that this brother resides. Yet and still, there's no mention of the murders in Chicago, but they could talk about well, Connecticut with ease, and they could talk about the any any time that there's a shooting at a school and whatnot. They they you know these things. They he's expected to have um, a news uh, a breaking news conference about these. He's expected to address these issues, but he hasn't even addressed the plight of the youth, let alone what the adults are going through. These are children that can't control the violence that has gripped their cities. And they're dying in the streets. And the brother, for some reason, and he has two little girls. But nobody has a problem with that. One of the things about the Connecticut situation that I thought would have woken, awakened a lot of blacks about the Obama oracle is the fact that Chicago, as you already articulated, has lost more blacks to gun violence than any other city in this country, and not only that, but also the fact that many of those laws were children. We've lost more than 20 children to gun violence, way more than 20, and in Chicago alone. But if you go nationally, it's been an epidemic of African children being murdered, and not just by each other, also by police officers. Obama did nothing, even in his own city of Chicago. But when those 20 white children get shot, and don't get me wrong, okay, I'm not pleased to have learned that that happened. But at the same time, how do you skip over the death of children who look just like you? And then when the white kids get killed, all of a sudden you want to put your racist ass Vice President Joe Biden, who ain't even doing anything about the lynchings of black men in his state of Delaware, which is a whole nother issue. You, you tell that racist to research and formulate a list of ways 
we can reduce gun violence in America. Look at all the years blacks have been getting murdered by gun violence. Never once has a president said we need to look at ways of reducing gun violence and put somebody from his cabinet on the job. But when those 20 white kids get murdered, that's exactly what Obama does. And yet black people still worship and preach to him. Now, Obama is a mason. Jay-Z is a mason. So obviously there's a little bit of a relationship there. I was reading in a magazine not too long ago that Beyonce and Michelle, you know, they're pretty good friends and they hang out. You know, if we're going to talk about the myth of uh, the illusion of inclusion and the myth of black progress, you have to talk about the role that the black bourgeoisie plays in this. And see, the black bourgeoisie, you know, and of course um, our good brother Steve Copley was now with the ancestors. He was a master of articulating this situation. But you don't even have to have all the statistics. You just have to look at the way white people use educated and successful black people against the rest of us. And basically what they've done after the civil rights movement, if they decided that the best way, the best way to give black people the illusion that they're making progress is to make sure some black people look like they're progressive. That's the whole idea. One Bill Cosby, one Oprah Winfrey, one Jay-Z, okay, one Bob Johnson. This is what they do. They give you one or two of a couple of extremely rich black folks, just a couple, and then they use those few blacks, no more than about a 1,000 of them in number, against the mm-hmm. other 40 million to say the reason why you're struggling isn't because of us. Look at Oprah. Look at Jay-Z. I mean, after all, he used to be a drug dealer, and he's a multimillionaire now. So if he can go from a drug dealer to a multimillionaire, clearly white supremacy is not your problem. Look at Bill Cosby. Look at Bob Johnson. And so the unread black person, the African who's not a critical thinker, will look at that and say, well, maybe it's not white supremacy. Maybe it is me. Because if Bill can do it, if Oprah can do it, if LeBron can do it, then maybe the problem is me. No one's talking about the fact that all of these rich black people who they keep putting up to you are athletes and entertainers. That is the same stereotype that has been perpetuated about blacks since we've been here. All of the rich blacks are nearly concentrated amongst athletes and entertainers. Show me someone with that type of money who didn't get rich entertaining white people. Oprah Winfrey got rich entertaining white people. Bill Cosby got rich entertaining white people. Bob Johnson got rich entertaining white people. Jay-Z got rich entertaining white people. That's right. Most rap albums are bought by white suburban kids, not blacks in the city. Okay? So the primary stock from which hip-hop music is purchased is by whites, not by us. So the fact that they're hanging up these rich blacks to say that the problem ain't us, the problem is you, is nothing but a military strategy to make us think that our problem is ourselves. Look at the system of white supremacy. Look at most people in jail, Africans, most people with advanced degrees, white people. The black unemployment rate is four times as high as the white unemployment rate. The black woman still doesn't live as long as the white woman. The black man still doesn't live as long as the white man. A black baby born in America has a one in four chance of going to jail. Soon when he comes out of his mother's womb, he has a one in four chance of going to jail. For a white male, it's about six out of every 500 of them. The white male doesn't even have to think about prison. The black male is chained to prison. 
because the white man decided that at the end of so-called slavery, that black people's population rate in this country should never threaten the population rate of whites. One of the reasons slavery was ended is because our numbers exceeded that of whites in many of the colonies. We were the majority of the population in South Carolina and in other places. And white folks began to fear that if there was a serious black revolt, they would not be able to quote that revolt because there's more blacks than whites. So there has always been, always been a concerted effort to make sure the black population growth rate stays steady at zero. White people are already at zero population growth. They want black people to be at zero population growth. They want to make sure more blacks die than are born. Make sure more blacks die than are born. The current eugenics extermination package that the government rolled out, they rolled out to us in the 1970s. It was in the 1970s when abortion became permanently legal. It was in the 1970s when special education was pushed into schools. It was in the 1970s that Planned Parenthood really began its aggressive approach for black abortion. Now, they've been around since the 20s, but it was in the 70s that they became very aggressive. Were you homosexuality in the 70s? If you look at most of the strategies that are being used to exterminate black people, they came to us in the 70s. That is two years after the assassination of Dr. King. That is Dr. King, exactly. Exactly. That whole decade with Nixon and Carter, and, um, you know, that was was definitely a period. It was the calm before the storm. Okay? It was definitely the calm before the storm. And um, I, like you said, many of those policies that were enacted in, the, in that era still exist to this day without challenge. And, you know, this is, I guess this is why we're here, to do the work. But, um, yeah, that's very interesting. Brother uh, Blue, are you there? Indeed. Indeed. D, please let the brother continue. Well, the one thing that I wanted to highlight, because I think it's very, very critical to look at, and that is the disparity in wealth ownership between so-called African Americans and white people. The disparity in wealth ownership. We have to understand something, and Millie Fuller does an excellent job of discussing this, even though he's not a psychologist by training from my understanding, but he does a good job of talking about psycholinguistics and how the words that are used shape your interpretation of your reality. The white man is master in coming up with words and then using those words to impact the way black people perceive our reality. For example, one such concept is middle class, the black middle class. There is no such thing as a black middle class. Class is a Marxist concept, a Leninist Marxist concept that relates to ownership of the means of production. In order to be middle class, you must have access to and control over corporations and institutions. Class is about wealth. What do you own in terms of resources, land, businesses? Stocks, material wealth, that's what class is about. Black people don't own a damn thing. We don't have class. 
We simply have black people who make a little bit more money than other black people. But that does not put them in a different class. When you look at poor white people and you look at the white middle class, what makes the white middle class separate from poor whites? It's because they own things and they are able to live off of residual income. The average white middle class person has investments that allow them to get paid even while they're not working. That's what makes them middle class. They own wealth. If you look at the average white person's assets, in fact, the current uh, census that was done said the average wealth of a black middle class home, middle class, is about $5,000. No wealth but cash in the bank, $5,000. The average wealth of a white middle class home is more than $100,000. You're looking at a $95,000 minimum. Worse than that. Brother Umar, yes, sir. I, I just want to I just want to be clear about what you just said. Did they say that five thousand dollars a week? No, five thousand dollars in total assets for that home. Five thousand. In other words, like, if you add up, yes, if you add up what the family is worth, add up their net worth. That's land, property, investment, stocks. Add it up. In the average black home is at five thousand dollars US. Damn. And that was almost enough. Middle class? And that can qualify well, the five thousand dollars doesn't qualify you for middle class, but that's how much wealth the average black oh, middle class okay. person has. Average black Okay, okay, all right. I'm clear now. Okay. So in other words, yeah. the average black middle class person is making more money. Excuse me, they're making more money than the poor black but they don't have more saved up than the poor black. Because as you know, the more we make, the more we spend. So, for example, if I'm a working-class black, I might have a $20,000 car note. But the minute I get an $80,000 job, I want me a bid. So I went from a $20,000 car to a $80,000 or $90,000 car. Now, I only make $80,000. But because I'm middle class, I feel like I have to look the part. So we end up spending even more money on excess materialism. So when you look at how much money the poor black person has saved and how much money the middle class person has saved, it's about the same amount of money. In fact, there was a study that said that the average black middle class, we ain't talking poor, we're talking so-called middle class blacks, is two paychecks away from poverty. The average middle class black family, because of their house and their car, and all the expensive stuff that they have, all the credit cards, if they got fired, they could survive a month. On the flip side, the average middle-class white family, because that's true class, they have wealth. The average middle-class white family could live at least a year if they were laid off of work, at least a year before they would have to start being concerned about how they're going to keep a roof over their head. Twelve months. Black person, one month. There's no such thing as a black middle-class. And and let me say this. Look at how they define class. In America, class is defined only by two things. How much money you make isn't one. I want to be clear about this. I want to make sure the listeners are clear. How much money you make has nothing to do with your class category. I want to be clear about that. The only two things they look at is how much education you have 
and your occupation. Where do you work? Let me repeat this. How much education you have and where do you work? So let me give you an example. You have a doctorate degree in education, a doctorate degree in education. But in your school district where you work at, all the white people control all the upper echelon jobs, the middle management jobs, the principal jobs, the administrative jobs. They're all controlled by white folks and a couple of token Negroes. So the fact that you have a doctorate degree did not earn you more money because there's no positions in your school district to which you can graduate to. So you have a doctorate. You're still a school teacher. You're raising three or four children, possibly by yourself, which is a situation many of our sisters are in who are educators. So you're raising two or three children by yourself. You're a school teacher. You have a doctorate degree. Because you have a doctorate and because you're a school teacher, you're going to be considered probably upper class with your doctorate. Your doctorate degree makes you upper class or at least upper middle class on paper. But in reality, the situation is what? Because you're only making about $40,000 in your job and that growth, not net, your take-home pay is less than $20,000 a year, and you're raising three or four kids, despite having a doctorate, despite being a teacher, your take-home pay is equivalent or less than a black person who's considered to be poor. An impoverished black person has the same take-home pay as many so-called upper-middle-class black people. It is the illusion of progress. The same amount of money they have to spend is no different than a poor black person. They're identical in terms of actual net pay that comes home. But because they have a doctorate and because they're a school teacher or a physician or an engineer or a counselor or, or, or a school nurse, okay, they're automatically considered middle class when the truth of the matter is they're just as broke as the people in the ghetto. Lord have mercy (laughs) Collect your Gucci bag It's going down That's interesting (laughs) My eyes are wide open right now Now we saw the spending report For black people And I think this was the 2011 spending report 2012s might not be out yet. For 2011, they said black people spend more money on more time on the internet, more money on the cell phone, more money on cell phone minutes, more money on internet minutes. So we are clearly dominating in the uh, what do we call that worldwide web market. Now, yes. the interesting thing that the report pointed out is black people are different in one major way than every other consumer in America. Two ways, I'm sorry, two. Two ways. The first way is we are conspicuous in our consumption. We buy stuff not because we need it, but because it is available. This was one of the biggest findings of the study. Black people will buy it just because it's new. In other words, you have an iPhone 4. Nothing's wrong with your iPhone 4. But a commercial just came out and said there's an iPhone 5. So you're going to go out and spend $400 on an iPhone 5. That's only slightly different than the iPhone 4. And why are you buying it? Because you need it? No. You're buying it because it is available. The study said black people are unlike everyone else. Most Americans buy things when they need it. They said black people buy it just because it's available. This is what white folks are saying. Put it out there, and the niggas are going to buy it. And then they said, 
that black people, more than any other people, what they own seems to reflect, what they own seems to reflect their own estimation of their self-worth. Look at that. What they buy. For most people, what they buy does not reflect their self-worth. But for black people, what they buy reflects their self-worth. That's taking us back to post-traumatic slavery disorder. That's taking us back to low racial self-esteem. It's saying the reason why we got a million pocketbooks, a million cars, a million pairs of sneakers, shoes, clothes, jeans, whatever we into, the reason why we have it is because on a subconscious level, we feel worthless. And so we buy all the material garbage as a vicarious way of adding value to ourselves. In other words, look at what I'm driving. Look at what I'm wearing. We use that to add worth to us. You see it in the schools with our children. Our children do never debate over what they know. They never debate over who they are. They only debate over what they own. Public school is nothing but a what? Fashion show where black children go and compete with other black children for how much they are worth based on what they are wearing and based on what they own. This is what we have created, a whole generation of baby niggers who don't know how to do anything but buy what white people make and then use it to look better than the next black person. Think about it. Whenever black Whenever we are congregating, what do we do when we're congregated? In the average black event, they stare each other up and down. The fellows look at each other to see how well they dress. The ladies look at each other to see how well they dress. And this is grown black people. The children have it even worse. Go ahead, Phil. You know, when I knew we had a major problem, it was about the early 2000s, 2003 and 2004, I understood what was going on in the high schools because, you know, people were speaking about the, the, the Jordan craze, you know what I'm saying? And before we had left high school, sneakers pretty much had a, a, a very heavy influence on, you know, the whole fad at, at the time. People, you know, that was the era where people were getting beat up for these sneakers and things like that. But in 2000 and 2005, you know, so around that time, I started noticing that every time that you would meet somebody your age in your demographics, not a teenager, although they were included in this as well, the first thing they would do is they would look at your feet before they looked you in your eye. Mm, that's right. The way, the way that they determined how they was going to receive you was whether your foot game, your foot gear was on par or what they felt with a particular level of self-worth to translate it into respect. And that was mind-boggling to me because it wasn't just coming from teenagers at this point. This was coming from, quote-unquote, grown individuals who were still listening to teenage music, though. So, you know, I want you to speak about how you spoke on it earlier about the black aristocracy you know what I'm saying? But I wanted you to pretty much list the categories of what is termed, quote-unquote, black aristocracy or the black bourgeoisie. Bourgeois. Indeed. The reason why I use the term aristocracy 
or elitist black or talented tenth, more so than bourgeois, because, again, bourgeois speaks to middle class. It speaks to wealth ownership. And because black people don't own any wealth, even our athletes, they own almost no wealth, almost no wealth. The average athlete puts his money into clothing, cars, and they might have an expensive home. There's some wealth there, but it's not really liquid because if they go broke, as you've seen with Mike Tyson and as you've seen with other athletes, they're not even able to sell them homes because the home was so expensive that they can't liquidate it if they actually needed the cash. So the home is wealth, but they can't really be liquidated because they're too expensive, and the average person just can't afford to buy it overnight. Okay, and plus the average white person would rather let the home foreclose. And once the home foreclosed, they ain't got to buy it from the silly Negro who bought it. They'll get it from the bank after they repossess it. So the average black athlete doesn't have any wealth either. In fact, there was a show that just came on about two weeks ago. I watched it when I was in Los Angeles, I think, and the show was called Broke. It was called Broke. And the show was about black athletes who have literally gone broke. And some of the names on the list blew my mind because I didn't know that they were broke. And the list had about 500 different athletes who were once rich and now broke because they mismanaged their money and didn't put it into any asset-building wealth investment. So that's what's going on with us. We're so interested in looking good that we don't even keep track of our money. But getting back to the black aristocracy, the black aristocracy has a long and rich history in this country. The black aristocracy has been around as long as there's been free blacks in America. Not necessarily talking about the Africans who were here prior to slavery, but those who came during slavery and then were able to be freed as a result of being born to free black parents or having bought their wealth. You had two groups of free blacks. You had those who fought for the blacks who were in slavery, and you had those who wanted to act like the white people. And when you study slavery, you'll find there was always two classes of free blacks, okay? You had the free blacks who fought in the Civil War, who gave their life to liberate their fellow brothers and sisters, okay? And then you had the other ones who wanted nothing to do with the Civil War, who felt that the black slaves, okay, should never be free or should be sent back to Africa. You've always had two types of uh, talented blacks. After Dr. King, after the Civil Rights Movement, the United States government deliberately sought to create a buffer class of black people that they could use to fight the poor and oppressed masses. This was done Intentionally, the white man decided that if we keep on sicking dogs on black people, that's going to affect our reputation around the world. we got to find another way to deal with these black people than dealing with them ourselves. There can be no more direct black-white confrontation, not as much as we've been having. Sometimes we might have to straight up confront the blacks, but we want to try to confront the blacks as much as, we, as possible with other black people. That was the reason why the talented tenth, the black aristocracy was created in the 1960s, especially in the 1970s. They would use them to fight the rest of us. So instead of it looking like whites oppressing blacks, it looked like blacks having disagreements with other black people. So they'll use Oprah Winfrey to say that you are your own worst problem. They'll use Bill Cosby to say you are your own worst problem. They'll use Barack Obama to say you are your own worst problem. So now white supremacy doesn't even have to defend itself because they have all these rich blacks, all these well-educated black doctors and lawyers and engineers and psychologists who will do the fighting for them. And as you notice, the average educated black person is closer to thinking like a white person than they are to thinking like a black person. 
This is why I have very few associates who have doctorate degrees, very few blacks who have doctorate degrees. I tend to basically keep a company to myself as it relates to blacks with doctorate degrees because the average Negro with a Ph.D., a J.D., a M.D., or a Psy.D. think he's better than other black people. They also tend to think that other black people are where they are because they chose to be there. They fail to recognize that those of us who become doctors are only allowed to become doctors because the system lets a few of us through. And the system lets us through the ones who they think are most likely to defend. For example, Umar Johnson was a reject. I was never supposed to make it. I was never supposed to make it. And almost didn't once they found out who I was and what I really stood for. Okay? So after I got my doctorate, white supremacy had to do what? Tighten its noose. Because after I graduated and other blacks who stand up, not just me, they say, okay, we let a couple of them through who shouldn't have got through. What do we have to do different to make sure we never get another Umar Johnson? Well, maybe we got to do a background check. Maybe we got to do this. Maybe we got to do that. But when every once in a while one of us breaks through, who should have never broke through? I happen to be one of them. Dr. Khalid Abdul Muhammad, rest in peace, he was one of them. Dr. Francis Cress Wilson, Amos Wilson, all these people, they were some of the ones who broke through. Okay, but we're not supposed to break through. And so what happens is they use that educated Negro to control the rest. Now, what are the five families of the black bourgeoisie? Because there's five families. Just like the Italian mafia has five families, we got five families. Okay? There is the entertainment aristocracy. These are black people who are well-placed in entertainment. Jay-Z, Oprah Winfrey, Bob Jackson, LeBron James. This is the entertainment aristocracy. These are blacks who get rich through entertainment and athletics, and their job is to do what? Deflect all attention away from white people as being responsible for the condition of black people. As you notice, Oprah Winfrey, her whole career was based on what? Catering to white women. That's how white supremacy operates. Here's a black woman, but her whole show caters to white women. That's what white supremacy is supposed to do. Look at Jay-Z. He got all these albums out here, pussy, bitch, hoe, all these negative terms, downgrading black women, talking about dark-skinned black women, high sold drugs, shotguns, boom, 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 boom. But all that is okay. Why is it okay? Because Jay-Z was willing to work with the owners of the um, Barclay system there to build that stadium and move all those poor black people out the way. So because Jay-Z was willing to do the bidding for white folks and becoming a mason, he could really even do even more bidding for white people, okay? He is okay for him to curse and to, and to put black people down because he's working for them now. He's on the inside. He's Obama's hip-hop person who keeps all the Negroes in check in the hip-hop industry. That's who he is. He's the Al Sharpton of the hip-hop world. Yep. See? So you got the entertainment bourgeois. Then you have who? The academic bourgeois. Who's the academic bourgeois? These are people like, uh, what's his name? Cornell West. Cornell. And uh, what's the one from Harvard? Henry Louis Gates. These are Negroes with doctorate degrees, and they use their education to do what? To make black people think white people is not the problem. You are the yep. problem. Something else is the problem. Ignorance is the problem, but it's not white supremacy. See, imagine the white man in the middle of a circle, and in order to get to him, you have five blacks standing around him. They're protecting him. 
That's what the aristocracy is, the entertainment aristocracy, the academic aristocracy, and then you have the religious aristocracy. Now, the religious aristocracy is one of the worst ones. They're one of the worst ones. And why are they one of the worst ones? Because they take all black people's money and in exchange only tell them that God will solve your problems. If you listen to the average black pastor, T.D. Jakes, whose son was caught playing with his penis in a park with white men, if those of y'all who haven't heard, T.D. Jakes' son is a sexual deviant. He was caught in a park playing with his penis in front of some white guys. It's all on YouTube. It's all on the Internet. All you have to do is type it in. You have Clark Cruffalo Dollar, who beat his daughter with a shoe. You have uh, uh, Eddie Rome, who was molesting black boys. But they are allowed to be rich. Why? Because they dissipate black revolutionary energy into religious channels. They tell black people, okay, your problem ain't the white man. Your problem is you haven't accepted Christ. All things will change for you. Everything will improve when you accept Christ. Or once you take this jihad and go to the masjid and start dealing with the teachings of Muhammad, then you'll be okay. This is what they do. And so black people listen to them, give them all their money, and then they got a nerve to turn around and say the Koreans is robbing the black community. Yes, the Koreans are robbing the black community, but the Koreans are not the biggest robbers of the black community. The biggest robbers of the black community is the black church. Hands down, the black church is robbing black people way more than any Korean corner store. The black church is getting way more money than the corner store. Very important that we understand it. The corner store... The, the corner store is operating out of a shack. Look at the average Chinese store. That's a shack, okay? They are getting paid. But now look at the church. They got a $20 million mortgage, $20 million mortgage. Do you know what that means? That means on top of paying the mortgage note, they also got money for furniture. They got money for trips. They got money for food. They got money for special guest speakers. It is a hustling operation. And their job is to do what? Make black people think their problem is not the white man. Their problem is their own sins. That's their job. And then they take all their money. So even if they decide to do something for themselves, they can't because they have to give their money to God. But all the money goes to the white bank. And then the white bank take God's money and then use that money to raise the property value in the black neighborhood. And so now the same black woman who gave her money to the church, that money is going to the bank. And that bank is going to use that money to raise the property tax value of her house. And now that black woman who gave her money to the bank is now going to be homeless because she ain't going to be able to pay the new property tax. Her yeah. money that she gave to God actually used to benefit the devil. Hmm. Okay. And then the next family, okay, so we got the religious aristocracy, the academic aristocracy, the entertainment aristocracy, and then we got the status aristocracy, the status. These are Negroes with titles. I'm the chief of police. I'm the president of the United States. I am a governor. I'm the vice president of this. I'm the president of that. they never the owner. They are never the owner, but they have a big title that makes you think they have power when all they is is a token. And all the poor black people flock to the black people with titles because they think they can do something for them when they can't do anything for them. But the job of the token Negro with a title is to do what? Gain black people's trust. And once they gain black people's trust, black people will think that if they stick with this person, things will change, but nothing never changes. 
Al Sharpton is a good example of that because Al Sharpton has a title. He's an assistant to President Obama. So all the black people are drawn to Al Sharpton. Now, he don't do nothing for them, though, nothing at all. But he keeps their hope alive that if they keep on trusting him and following him, sooner or later he's going to deliver them from the white man. Total nonsense and a total waste of time. And then the last one, the last one is black people with money, rich blacks with money. You're normally looking at $500 million or more. Now, some blacks belong to multiple categories. Jay-Z, Oprah Winfrey, Bill Cosby, Bob John, they belong to multiple categories. They belong to entertainment. They also belong to Negroes with money category. These are black people with millions of dollars, and they never give that money to anything worthwhile. They know Umar Johnson trying to build a school, but they ain't wrote a check. They know that there's different institutions we need in our community, but they ain't wrote a check. Why is it that you never see athletes and entertainers and rich black people do anything to help the neighborhood? Because the number one rule to being rich and black in America, if you want to stay rich and black, never use your money to help your own people. Never. If you want to help black people, do it in Africa. You want to help black people, go to the Caribbean. You want to help black people, go to England. You want to help black people, go to Canada. But you better never be caught using your money to help improve the condition of black people. That's why Jay-Z went to Africa and he done something for one of the villages in Africa. That was real nice, but he ain't do a damn thing for Brooklyn. Oprah Winfrey went to South Africa. She built the school. I don't have a problem with that. I'm a Pan-Africanist. But you're based in Chicago with the worst school system in America, one of the worst in the world. You didn't do nothing for them. This is what they do. And then you turn on the TV, what do you see? LeBron James and Kobe Bryant posing with white kids. If you notice, every time they show you an NBA carriage program, you always see black athletes helping white children. There might be one token black, but most of the time it's white. Why can't they help their own damn children? Because it's against the rules of white supremacy. If you want to be a rich black person, enjoy your money. Spend your money, but don't spend it on your own kind. Hmm. Or, you know, don't spend it on your own kind to help your own kind. You could you could blow 50 racks. You could throw a party. You could blow 50 racks at King of Diamonds. You could buy all the sneakers in the world. You could show off your Louis Vuitton sheets and all of that stuff. But if you Negroes even act like you want to help the condition of the Negroes around you, oh, no, we pulling plugs. You know what I mean? We coming up with scandals and all kind of shit. You getting pulled over, we putting a gun on you, something is going to happen to sit you down. They're going to cat Williams you. <laughs> And and we left out two things. There's two honorary positions. Two honorary positions. One, there's a light skinned supremacy ring amongst the black aristocracy. Now you could be dark skinned and be a black aristocracy. Now, remember Vernon George, Bill Clinton's buddy, who took the Monica, Le- Monica Lewinsky uh, rap. Okay. Yes. Vernon Jordan. Okay. He dark skinned brother. He made it to the aristocracy. But if you're light skinned. Sometimes you can get a special privilege because white people don't like being around dark-skinned blacks. They don't like being around black people, period. But if you've got a brother or sister who's light-skinned and they belong to the aristocracy, that gives them an extra preference. But there's another special category that gives you even more preference than just having light skin, and that is if you're homosexual or lesbian. If you yep. are homosexual and lesbian 
and you are in the black aristocracy, there is no limit to which you cannot climb. In fact, you can become president of the United States. Oh, oh. talk about it. And so that's why it's so important for us to build schools for our children so they can understand how white supremacy operates. See, white supremacy is a system. And because it is a system, we should never fall for any type of a token advancement because individuals don't change systems. People change systems, not individuals. So they give you a black president, but white supremacy has not changed. The system remains the same. They give you Oprah Winfrey. But white supremacy has not changed. The system is still the same. They give you LeBron James. White supremacy has not changed. The system has remained the same. That's why we have to stop thinking we're doing better because you see another black place, black face in a high place. White supremacy is a system. For example, take the worst public school in New York City. Take the worst public school in Philadelphia. Give that public school the best black principal you can find. Even with the best black principal you can find, the children are still going to fail. How can they fail with the best black principal in the damn country? Because the system in place prevents the children from being able to be successful. It prevents the black principal from being able to accurately administer instruction in that school. In other words, all the teachers are still what? White crackers who don't want to teach our children. Okay? Also, the manner in which the principal is going to be ordered to spend that money is still going to be the same. So they won't be able to redirect that money to the programs that's necessary in order to help the black children. Their principal won't be able to make the teachers stay after school for extra meetings. They won't be able to extend the school day. They won't be able to teach African history. So even though you've got a black face, you've got the same system. So whether it's Obama, whether it's the principal, whether it's the mayor, whether it's the governor, you've got the same damn system. I don't care if I have a black mayor. The system is still controlled by white people. So until you change the nature and function of the system, white supremacy is still in charge no matter whose face you see. Well, Brother Umar, let me ask you this, just so we can get it on record. Why is it in a global power dynamic that it is important for white supremacy not to allow a black man in America to exert any sort of control or improvement of his condition? Because revolution is contagious. Revolution is very contagious. What did Fred Hampton Sr. tell us? You can kill the revolutionary, but you can never jail the revolution. So if you allow one man to stand, he serves as an example from which thousands will stand. Let's take the Haitian Revolution, for example. The Haitian Revolution inspired Nat Turner. The Haitian Revolution inspired Gabriel Prosser. The Haitian Revolution sparked modern Pan-Africanism. The Haitian, August the 21st is so significant in our history because of the Haitian Revolution. And Nat Turner, that, that was August 21st. George Jackson, that was August the 21st. August 21st on the Marcus Garvey Convention. I mean, what, as Marcus Garvey said, whatever you do today, even if you fail, whatever you do today will inspire people to act 
at some future time. And so the reason they can never allow one black man to rise is because his rising will automatically spark the hearts and souls of other black people. That's why it was necessary to kill Malcolm X in front of the black community. He wasn't killed secretly. He was killed in front. That's why it was important to kill Dr. King in front. Why? So the people can see Gaddafi. And Gaddafi was an Arab. I'm not a Gaddafi fan. I do respect some of the things he was doing with the African nation. But why was it necessary for them to kill the man, sodomize the man, and do him, do with him and his body something that should never be done to any human being? To instill fear in all the other African heads of government so that if you try to float another African dollar, if you try to build another African bank, if you try, to float another African satellite and cut us out of the cell phone market of Africa, which is one of the largest markets in the world, we will do the same thing to you we did to conduct the purpose of public murder. The purpose of public murder is to instill fear in anybody else in that population who got the guts to do what that person did. That's why they can't let us rise, because revolution is contagious. But it, it, it sometimes bewilders me that, you know, because, you know, our people are not afraid to die, right? Some of our people are not afraid to die. Some of our people are not afraid to die. I say that because every night across ghetto USA, our brothers and sisters are going out there and putting their life on the line, putting their necks on the line, you know what I'm saying, publicly being executed by one another in the name of sex, money, and drugs, whatever it is. You dig what I'm saying? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a part of us that, are, you know, we, 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 we're willing to become martyrs for the streets. We want to become urban legends, you know what I'm saying, dudes out there having broad day shootouts and everything, but... Those of us that know that this 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 front line, being on the front line and putting this struggle on our shoulders, may in fact put our lights on the line. You know, I don't see too many people running to sign up for that the same way that they're running to sign up for you know that that uh that get rich or die trying program. Very true. See what I'm saying? Very true. If we could you know, take so, that pain, mm-hmm. that energy, that passion that the young brothers and sisters have and channel it into productive vehicles, we would be able to transform our situation. In other words, those brothers and sisters on the corner, they are the soldiers. They have the courage. They just need the consciousness to go along with it. If we can raise the consciousness of those courageous brothers and sisters out there on that corner, that will be the revolutionary army. Remember, well, it's our situation, it's, it's, our situation it's is not going to be transformed by educated blacks. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, our situation is not going to be changed by educated black people. One thing we got to understand about black scholars, Yesterday and today, 
okay? And this isn't mean, this isn't meant to demean any of them, okay? Scholars have rarely been at the forefront of our struggles. I don't care if they're Afrocentric. I don't care what they are. Scholars are rarely at the forefront of our struggles. People like Amos Wilson, Dr. Clark, okay, Dr. Ben, those folks are exceptions. I'm an exception. But the average scholar, even the historians, okay, I'm, I'm leaving nobody out of this, are rarely going to participate in our struggle, and we need to understand that. They might provide you with some information, but they're not necessarily going to participate in that struggle. Okay, scholars, that's one of the biggest contradictions of our experience. Our most learned people rarely play a decisive role in our struggles. They normally give advice, and they stay in the background. Most of them is because, you know, they were never really married to the struggle in the first place. They were just married to the information. They were never married to the substance and to the action. And then a lot of them work for white universities and colleges. So at the end of the day, when the shit jump off, you can't count on them because they have a tenure professor job. You think they're going to give up their tenure professor job to help black people? You say, well, wait a minute, brother. Ain't you the Afrocentric man? That don't mean shit. Most of them niggas are self-serving. They are about checks and status, and we have to understand that. It's the brothers on the corner who you want to go to war with, not the brothers in, in, in the lecture hall. The brothers in the lecture hall don't do no banging. They don't do no organizing. When is the last time you've seen a well-celebrated African historian participate in a march, participate in a rally, participate in a picket, put their name on the line, get on the TV and fight for Mamiya, fight for the Move 9, okay, fight for Russell Schultz, okay, fight for uh, Marshall Eddie Conway. You don't see them doing that. Most of them are very, very safe men and very, very safe women. They do not get involved in struggle. And one of our issues in the conscious community is we tend to go to them for the leadership. They're not going to be your leaders. They are not fighters. They are intellectuals, and that's all they are. And if you keep on looking for them for leadership, we're not going to get anywhere. And I only say that because we got to get very critical about our situation. We got to get very, very critical. We got to understand, okay, find those few scholars that's going to bang with us. We know Dr. Umar, he's going to bang with us. He worked for himself. He don't work for the crack. He's going to bang for us. Find a few other ones who are going to bang for us, okay? Brothers who are willing to donate their time and their energy without necessarily being paid for it all the time. Find those few and get them to bang with you, okay? Because a lot of them are about self-aggrandizement and a lot of them are about money. That's just the reality, y'all. I work with them, okay? It's just the reality. Okay, those brothers on the corner, those are the ones I want. If I got to go to war, bring me the brother fresh out of jail. Bring me the sister who got two strikes. Don't bring me some Negro with a $250,000 house out in the suburbs and a Ph.D. That's the last Negro I'm going to bang with because he got too much to lose. He got an education so he can live comfortably with white people. He didn't get his education to sacrifice for black people. My whole time working on my doctorate, I knew that I'm doing this for my people, and if I lose it, so be it, because this is nothing but a weapon for the oppressed. We've got to get very strategic when it comes to this military science piece of black people. And we can't think just because somebody's talking black that they're going to be on the front line. Alton is an exception. Attorney Alton is an exception. Most black scholars are not going to step out there for the people like that. They write books. They give lectures. They'll do any of that. But when you say, look, we got to go to him protest the beating of his brother by the cops. Don't call them. Don't call them. They're not coming. 
They are cultural celebrities. That's all they are. They are not revolutionaries. Don't get it twisted. Damn. <laughs> the chat room and everybody that's listening to this, is, and we are all in agreement that you are going all the way in tonight. I love it. You got that spirit in you, brother. You must have drank the tap water in Africa. But, um, <laughs> I'm glad that that has been said. Uh, too often, we um, in the community are, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the family that's never really been put out there like that. You know what I'm saying? A lot of the family look towards the lecturers and the quote unquote scholars as the ones that are going to be the ones that are going to do everything. And I've always said, look, man, I hear what y'all saying, but there's some Negroes sitting right there in the corner and over there in the projects that if y'all don't take the time to break the ice with them and put them on your team, either you're going to fight alongside them in the future or you're going to be fighting them niggas in the future. And I don't think that's what you want. You feel what I'm saying? Those brothers and sisters that are out there in the streets who, might I add, are waking up one by one. That's right. right. They are waking up one by one, and they are beginning to, um, you know, when they talk about the sleeping giants, when when the sleeping giant wakes up, the roar that it's going to let off, they're beginning to prepare their roar. And it's brothers like you and a few other brothers that are out there that have that spirit and that voice and that message that they're connecting to, okay? I've been in many barbershops when, you you know, you had the um, issues in the source with Meek Mill on the cover and the other one, and it was almost like a it, it was a no-look pass for me to just open up the, the magazine and just hand it to somebody like, yo, you ever heard of that brother right there? And they'd be like, nah, who's that? And then they'll, they'll read the article and jump right on their smartphone and pull you up on YouTube or something. And that sparks a conversation. That's the seed that's planted. Feel what I'm saying? Yes, so, indeed. So there's really, we really, um, in the near future, I'm, 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 I'm the brother that's willing to go out there on the front line and pull these brothers in because I've been out there. And we need groups of us that are going to really go out there and knock on doors and wake people up and really, you know what I'm saying, like just, just give them the fundamentals at first. It's, it's not anything. Now, that was some real talk right there, man. I appreciate the fact that you even said that, you know what I mean? And, you know, you broke it down in a way that only, you know what I'm saying, you broke it down in Umar Johnson fashion, you know what I mean? You left no stone unturned. So, you know, it's just an understanding that this is, uh, we all play our parts, and we all have to respect each other for the parts that we play, but everybody is not, all around, 100%, you know what I'm saying, the ones that are going to, you know, they're not the ones that's going to carry everything. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And the other thing, too, we have to make sure that we are spending an equal amount of time dealing with our present situation and planning our future moves that we spend studying our history. Now, this might rub some people the wrong way, 
But as a military scientist and a political scientist and a pan-Africanist, I got to say it. We, as a people, are spending way more time on studying our history than we are in dealing with our present predicament and in planning and coming up with an agenda for how we should be moving in the near future. I'm hearing almost no dialogue about the present and future, and almost Mm -hmm. everything is about the past. 75% of our lectures is about the past. Yes, we need to teach our history. Yes, our children need to learn it, but they cannot live there. There's not a single one of those personalities that can come here and fix this for us. Now, they can give us the energy to do it, but we got to do the work ourselves. And I'm only saying that because sometimes study of history and culture can almost be used as a form of escapism that keeps us from dealing with the reality of this day and time. I love history. I read it all the time because I want to know more and more about who I am. That's an ongoing process because I never know everything. But I also know that if I don't stop studying the past and start trying to build this school for our children in the future, even if I learn all there is to know about Kimmy, even if I learn all there is to know about the great kingdoms of Cush and Ethiopia, even if I learn everything there is to know about the Kemet and the Dogon, I have still failed if I haven't done something to create a future for our children who are living now and those who are yet to be unborn. See, here's the point that I want us to understand. When we say we owe our ancestors, I want us to make sure that we understand that the ancestors of the past, come back as the children of the future. From an African frame of reference. From an African frame of reference. From an African frame of reference. Every last one of us who is walking this earth is the reincarnation of an ancestor from our direct bloodline. You come from your mother's side, or you come from your father's side. But you are the reincarnation of an ancestor through your bloodline. And we all die, and we come back again. So if I am claiming to honor my ancestors, and all I'm doing is studying about what they were, but I'm not taking care of my future, when that ancestor returns as a newborn child in the community, they will suffer the same hell they suffered last time they was here because us, their children, their reincarnated descendants, did nothing to make a better future for them. So understanding that my past is my future, understanding that everybody who died got to come back, I'm going to do something to make today and tomorrow better. So when Harriet Tubman comes back, through her great-great-great-grandchild. When Martin Delaney comes back, when Shaka Zulu comes back, when all those great ancestors return in the wombs of the black woman, I'm going to be able to say, ancestor, I served you well, because while you were gone, this is what I built. While you were gone, 
this is what I've done. So when you come back in the next lifetime, Harriet Tubman, when you come back in the next lifetime, Queen and Zinga, when you come back in the next lifetime, Mr. Muhammad, when you come back in the next lifetime, Malcolm and Martin and Patrice Lumumba and Biko and Amakal Cabral and Nkrumah and Sekou Ture, when you come back the next time, my, my warrior, you won't have to do what you did last time because while you was away, I took care of business, and this time around, you're going to have it easier. That's my definition of serving my damn ancestors. Well, bye tonight. That is that, that's such a gem right there, brother. That is a monumental gem right there. Real talk. Real talk, man. Thank you for that one, brother. Thank you. That had to be that 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 one right. I'm about to put that on Facebook. That needs to be heard. Indeed, indeed. Right now, they are looking at you. Some of them are inside of cribs with baby bottles. Some of them are going to sleep. They're sleeping right now, preparing themselves for school. But they are here. Those crystals that are here, those rainbows, those indigos, whatever title that we give them, they definitely have come back because you can tell by the spirit in which these children have that they are indeed the ancestors. And the work that has to be done has to be done right now. We can dig into the past, you know what I'm saying? But it has to be for purposes of the future. Or we'll get lost. And the other thing, too, Pill, I want to clarify African religion a little bit. Because when I travel the world, speaking about African religion, and I'm a newbie, but I've had the opportunity to learn from some of the Bawalawos and the master priests and priestesses. I actually just had a reading this past week where, you know, I had to do some certain sacrifices that I'm not going to get into to open up the path for some of the things I'm trying to do. But nonetheless, I want people to understand something. In the African spiritual system, and it don't matter which one because they're all nothing but the same thing with different names, whether we're talking about the Loas of the Voodoo, whether we're talking about the Abusum of the Akan, whether we're talking about the Netaru of Kemet, whether we're talking about the Orisha of the Ifa of the Yoruba in Nigeria, it's the same system. Whether we're talking about the Palo or the Lakumi or the Santeria, it's the same system. I need African people to understand. And the reason I'm talking about this is because in order for us to get to where we need to do, where we need to be, we're going to have to return to our ancient spiritual system. And it does not require you to give up your current religion. I want to make sure we're clear. You can be Muslim and still deal with the ancestors. You can be Christian and still deal with the ancestors. You can be Hebrew and still deal with the ancestors. In fact, when you invoke Jesus and when you invoke Muhammad and when you invoke Abraham, you are invoking ancestors. But here's what I need us to understand. In the African spiritual system, there's a hierarchy, a divine hierarchy. At the top is the most high, called by many names. None of them are sufficient. Netaru, you got Amin Ra. In Ifa, you got Olorun, Olodumare, Olofim. Okay? You go to the Akan, you have Nyame. 
different names for the creator, different names all over Africa, different names all over the world, and it's okay no matter which one you use because none of the names are sufficient because you cannot capture the infinite invisible with a title. So it doesn't matter what your name you, 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 you use, none of them are sufficient, so they are all acceptable. God is so powerful, so unfathomable, so incomprehensible that it is impossible for us to totally comprehend the totality of the great spirit. Our ancestors knew that. And because they knew that, they dealt with God through the various manifestations of the one God's personality. So, for example, let's take Yoruba. Let's take the Ifa religion. In the Ifa, you have what's called Orisha, which means head. You're talking about the leading attributes of the one God's personality that we have personified so that we can relate to it. Because these are spirits. So you have Obatala. Obatala is the father of the Orisha or father of the spirits, you can say, or, or one of the main aspects of God's personality. Obatala deals with purity, patience, righteousness. So when you need that type of energy in your life, you tap into Obatala. Now, when you pray to Obatala, are you praying to something separate from God? Not at all. You're simply dealing with one aspect of the divine personality. Then you go over to Shango. When you're dealing with Shango, you're dealing with the energy of lightning. When you're dealing with Shango, you're dealing with kingship because Shango was a warrior king. When you're dealing with Shango, you're dealing with wealth energy. When you're dealing with Shango, you're dealing with courage. Are you praying to a being separate from God? No, you're dealing with that aspect of the supreme being's personality. And then we come to Oshun. When we come to Oshun, we're talking about the energy of beauty. We're talking about the energy of the streams, of the lakes, of the rivers. Are you praying to an entity separate from God? No, you're not. You're dealing with that aspect of God's personality that deals with beauty, that deals with the rivers and the streams, that deals with childbirth, that deals with compassion, that deals with love. When you come to Ogun, Ogun is the divine energy of perseverance, persistence, of metal, of war. Because, yes, God is a God of war. Because the only way you can bring back righteousness is to exterminate evil. So, yes, God is a God of war. But when you worship Ogun, are you worshiping something separate from God? No, you're not. You're worshiping one of God's aspects. When you go to Yemoja, you're dealing with the great divine mother. And we know that God was worshipped as a woman way longer than God was worshipped as a man. So you're dealing with the big mama. You're dealing with the energy of the waters. And then you go to Baba Luaya, you're dealing with the energy of the earth and the energy of disease and health. And we could go on and on. You go to the Netaru, you're dealing with the same thing. Whether you're talking about Sekhmet, whether you're talking about Aset, Haru, these are aspects of the one divine personality. I need my Christians and Muslims and Hebrews to understand that African religion is a monotheistic religion. It is not polytheistic. But because you fail to recognize that God exists in all of God's creation, you see when we pay respect to God's creation, you interpret it as we're worshiping multiple deities when all we're doing is worshiping the supreme energy, the one supreme energy manifested 
measure it different ways. Don't confuse the practice with the principle. There's only but one God. That one God came from Africa and invaded Christianity. It came from Africa and invaded Islam. It came from Africa and invaded the Hebrew system. And there's nothing wrong with being a Hebrew. But I need you to understand that's only one African reality. It's okay to be Christian. There's only one African reality. If you're Muslim, there's only one African reality. Even if you're Kemet or Dogon, there's only one African reality. We are the oldest people on earth. We have hundreds of thousands of different spiritual interpretations. So why do I have to say mine is better than yours? And why do you have to say yours is better than mine? Practice how you choose to practice. But the one thing that African religion has that we got to take back if we are to win this war against white supremacy is it has a profound respect for the ancestors of your bloodline that have transitioned Mm -hmm. to be with the Most High. So in your home, you need to build you a shrine. I don't care if you're Muslim or Christian or what you are. If you claim to be a revolutionary and you don't have a shrine in your home to your living there, you're not serious. Because when Umar Johnson goes to war, I got a call on Frederick Douglass. I got the call on him because he's one of my living dead. He walked this walk before. He know what I'm dealing with. And so I got the call on his name so that energy can come with me. I got the call on my grandmothers who didn't pass. I got the call on my great-grandfathers who didn't pass. I got two grandfathers who were Civil War veterans. You think I'm not going to call on that military energy when I'm out there dealing with crackers and haters? Of course I'm going to call on Well, you got great people in your line. But if you don't tap into great-great-grandma, if you don't tap into great-great-grandpa, you're missing out on all that revolutionary energy of your family. They are ready to help you. They are waiting to help you. They are in your house. They are in your car when you drive. They're at the job when you're there. But if you don't say, help me, if you don't call their name, if you don't invoke that energy, it will not come to your assistance. We are losing out on so much spiritual power because we refuse to acknowledge our living dead. We refuse to call the names of our ancestors. Get the pictures of your grandmoms and grandpas. Get some of their old clothing. Get their pipe. Get their favorite music instrument. Get their favorite type of drink. Get their favorite type of food. Get your candle. Put it up there. Write their names down if you ain't got no pictures of paraphernalia. Burn your instant. Put some fruits and vegetables up there. Cook them a bowl of rice. Cook them some fish. Whatever you know about them they like, put it out there and talk to them. Say, great-grandma, I heard you was a master mother. I'm having trouble raising my children, but I heard you did a good job. Can you give me some of that energy? I need you. You're not praying to your ancestors. No more than you pray to Dr. Umar when you call on me to help you fight the situation that's facing your son. When you call me up and ask me for help, are you worshiping me? Hell no. You're simply calling on me to help you. And that's what we do with our ancestors. We don't worship our ancestors. We worship the one God. But we need to call on that ancestral energy. They don't walk this walk, and we got to do it too. I am firmly convinced that until we reclaim our African spirituality, until we put the feminine essence back into our religious practice, because Islam made God a man. Christianity made God a man. Even the Hebrews made God a man. But in Africa, God was both male and female. If you needed to call on an aspect of God that was masculine, 
is me and you need to go to war, Pill. We need that masculine aspect of God. So I'm going to call on Ogun. I'm going to call on Shango. I'm going to call on God the Father. But if my mother is in the hospital and she ain't doing well, or if my queen is pregnant and we expecting a healthy child, those are feminine things right there. We're talking about health and healing. So if I need to deal with the feminine principle of the divine, I'm going to call on God the mother. In Africa, we call on God the father and God the mother, and ain't one no better than the other. God the mother ain't no greater than God the father, and God the father ain't no greater than God the mother. They are equal. And you call on them as you need them in your life. Wow. Yes, indeed. That is the healing message right there, brother. That is profound. Personally, want to thank you for that. No problem. No problem. No doubt. Blue. Yes, bro. Just checking to see if you're still with us, brother. I am. I have a question as well. Um. Now, based on your observation of some of the things that you listed tonight, Brother Umar, wouldn't you say that white supremacy is on the defensive globally as a result of the fact that it has to express its power openly and violently through the use of drones in Africa and the Mideast as a result, right? Doesn't it have what you would probably consider a greater fear of the black man uniting? And is that why white supremacy has to put people like Barack Obama, President Barack Obama for that matter, in vital positions of Okay. See, the essence the essence of warfare is deception. And white supremacy as a strategic military program for white people has to also practice deception. Placing Obama in office was a supreme act of deception because it literally influenced billions of black people around the world to actually trust in white supremacy again. Now, a lot of what the white man is doing, he's doing out of aggression, not necessarily out of a defensive position. In other words, his invasions of Libya, Egypt, now he's in Africa, this is being done to make sure they continue to control the resources, the mineral resources. He's always on the defensive because he's a minority. Whenever you're outnumbered, you're always on the defensive. He wakes up every day being on the defensive because he's a physical minority. But in terms of what he's doing on the other side of the earth, he's doing that out of aggression to ensure that China doesn't beat him out as it relates to the recolonization of Africa for the resources. But in terms of your original question, is he on the defensive? He's always on the defense because his existence is questioned every day. Remember, you have a minority of people dominating a majority of people. Whenever a few dominates the many, they can never sleep at peace. People often ask me, if white supremacy is running this place, if they're in control, why are they so damn paranoid about anybody who speaks up? So when anybody speak up, they go and pop them, lock them up, take them out. I mean, if they're in control, why can't they just let a little bit of black revolutionary energy out there? Because they understand military science. And the white man knows that the greatest empires in the world, the greatest ones, 
fell overnight to powers that was weaker than what they were. This is why I always influence black people, never give up hope. And it's hurting me because I'm seeing so many black people put faith in white supremacy. And then I see a lot of other black folks who know what white supremacy is. They're not putting their faith in white supremacy, but they don't really feel that there's hope for us in the future. We got to keep our hope. Where would we be if our ancestors didn't put hope in our ability to at least be physically free? Where would we be? Even if you don't agree with the sum total of the civil rights movement, where would we be if those ancestors didn't have hope that they could undo some of that stuff? Where would we be if Harriet Tubman didn't think that there was any hope in what she was doing? I mean, we got to understand, we come from a people who had faith even when they didn't have proof that they should have faith. we got to recognize that lesson. And I'm seeing a lot of us are starting to give up. And that's another reason why we need to tap into our spiritual energy. Because I tell you, I was raised Muslim. My grandmother, Jehovah Witness. I got a great, I got an uncle who's a pastor. I got five percenters in my family. I got every religion you can think of within my extended family. And I had an opportunity to experience all those energies. And they were beneficial to some extent in certain areas. But it wasn't until I started tapping into African religion that I really began to get the force that I needed to try to sustain me as I do what I need to do. I know that my ancestors are there. Okay? In fact, when I got my reading in Florida a couple of days ago, you know what the queen mother told me, the priestess? She said, you got an ancestor. This is what she told me. You got an ancestor that travels with you everywhere you go. Whenever you walk into the room, he's there. She said, he got a very dark, deep voice, a very deep voice. And she said, wherever you at, he is there. I told her who it was. I said, that's my uncle, Frederick Douglass. She didn't know I was related to Frederick Douglass. I explained it to her. I said, he has the deepest voice in my family. He, even though my grandfather was in a struggle, he was the most profound of all my ancestors who participated in black revolution. I said, furthermore, one day I was in my apartment a couple years ago, and his name, excuse me, not his name, my name, was shouted inside my apartment by a, by a very deep voice, and I thought it was Frederick Douglass there. She confirmed it with the reason when she said it. Somebody, everywhere you go, he's with you. He's rooting you on. He's cheering you on, and he got an extremely deep voice. I said, that's Frederick Douglass. She said, he's with you everywhere you go. I said, I'm not surprised because I call on his energy whenever I pull my libation for my ancestors. And not only him, because I can't jump to him and skip my two spirit guys, which is my two grandfathers, George and Stephen, Frederick's brother and nephew. They are my spirit guys. Frederick's energy is with me because I'm doing his work. But I want to be clear, my two spirit guys are my two grandfathers through whose seed I come. Frederick is an uncle, but they are the fathers. And I'm only putting this out there to say that we got so much energy that we need to tap into. People say, how you do it? How you fight the crackers, fight the jealous blacks, deal with this, deal with that, travel from place to place because that's the energy. Y'all want to know my secret? That's my secret, but it's your secret too. But you got to mm-hmm. call on them to come. I've never been the same since I went to Africa, and that's why I want everybody listening to the show tonight to get your butt to Africa. I don't care where you go. You go East Coast, West Coast, Central Africa, go to North Africa, go to South Africa. I've been all over the continent. It don't matter where you go, but you need to take off your shoes, put your feet on that soil, get in that water. When I was in Liberia, Pill, I had an opportunity to go to Miami Beach. 
Liberia was colonized by the American Colonization Society, so a lot of the towns are named after American towns. So the beach is Miami Beach. I got an opportunity wow. to go into that water. And guess what I learned while I was on the beach? I learned where the concept of the burning sands comes from. When I took mm-hmm. my shoes off to walk on the sand, the sand was burning hot. I had to put my shoes back on. I said, I'm burning. And then I started reflecting on the Greek mythology about how the Greek philosophers said they had to cross the burning sands and how when our brothers and sisters joined Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity and when they joined Omega Psi Phi fraternity and when they joined Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity and when they joined Phi Beta Sigma, when they joined Zeta Phi Beta, a.k.a., when they joined Sigma Gamma Rho and Delta Sigma Theta, before you cross over with the knowledge and the secrets, you have to cross the what? Burning sands. Do you know what that comes from? That comes from the Greeks and the Romans crossing the sands of Kemet to get that wisdom that our ancestors had. When I put my feet on that sand in Liberia, I knew that's where they got the concept of the burning sand. They had to walk bare feet for that knowledge. We got to go back and reclaim what's ours. And I don't mean in no romanticism thing. I don't mean in no religious thing. I don't mean in no form of escapism. I'm not saying turn our spirituality into a religion. I'm saying your ancestors are with you, and we're going to need the sum total of their power to overcome this situation. I mean, don't forget, we just came into 2012. We're in the age of Aquarius. When I was in Florida the other day, we was driving, coming from the meeting of the minds for Team Pan-African, and I want to influence everybody on the call, get down with the organization, my organization, Team Pan-African. We just had a powerful meeting of the minds of Fort Lauderdale. I mean, it was powerful, powerful. My good roster brother down to, uh, in Florida, he's editing the video, so that should be available for purchase to help us raise money for Team Pan-African. Our next meeting of the minds is going to be in Detroit, Michigan, first weekend in March. Third meeting of the minds, Brother Dante, Virginia Beach, Virginia. That's going to be in May. July, we're going to be in Chicago. September, we're going to be in Texas with my brother Trey. In November, we're going to end the year off right here in Philadelphia with the final meeting of the minds for 2013. But if anybody out there looking for an organization they want to get down with, they're tired of the talking, and they don't want nobody telling them what type of religion they got to pray to or believe in, we, I'm not into that. This is a political economic movement. As Marcus Garvey said, he said the UNIA is not religion. The UNIA is none of that. He said the UNIA exists for one thing, and that is nation building. And that's what Team Pan-African is, the international movement for the independence and protection of African people. We're the vanguard of the 21st century. So if you want to get down with us, send me an email, send me a text, hit me on Facebook, hit me on Twitter, get your plane ticket, get ready for Detroit, Michigan, because we're coming back strong, strong, the first weekend in March. And to that end, I also have to send peace and blessings to the spirit of our great ancestor, Dr. Tony Martin. I don't know if y'all got the news, but Dr. Tony Martin, who is the official historian of the Garvey movement, made transition a couple days ago while he was in the hospital at, in his native Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. This is the brother who wrote Race First, probably the best biography of the Garvey movement. This is the brother right. who publishes Marcus Garvey's Philosophy and Opinions, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Philosophy and Opinions, Volume 3, is actually published out of uh, Europe and out of Africa. That was written by 
Amy Jakes Garvey and E.U. Isin Udom, the Garvey Scholar out of Nigeria. But volume one and two was published by Tony Martin. He published The Course of African Philosophy, the small blue and white book, The Poetical Works of Marcus Garvey, Literary Garveyism, African Fundamentalism, the, the biography of Amy Ashwood Garvey. Brothers and sisters, we lost a giant in Tony Martin. I had the opportunity to share the stage with him at North Carolina Central University, but the official historian of the Garvey movement has joined the ancestors. Brother Umar, at 11.11, we pause for a meditation. What I want to do is have the family pause for a moment of silence. Please send some love and some light to our brother and his journeys. Yes. Spirit of the ancestors, if you want to call out some other names of our ancestors as well, please feel free. Yes, uh, I want I want to um, definitely send a rest in light to the brother Uriel Bay, who um, is also made transitions to the ancestors. So definitely, brother Uriel Bay, your works and everything that you have done will be carried to the fullest. By those who are still here. Sure. D, my namesake, Uncle Paul, Ashe, calling on my ancestors, Bone Pop, Ashe, Grandpa Ralph, Ashe. to the uh, spirits of the giants amongst us, you know, to the family. We have our personal ancestry that we send our love and benediction to, our blessings, our blessings for that matter. Also, you know, those that we recognize collectively, people like Frederick Douglass, Ashe, people like Marcus Mosiah Garvey Ashe. Ashe. Martin Luther King Ashe. Ashe. Elijah Muhammad Ashe. Ashe. Brother Drew Ali Ashe. Dr. Amos Wilson Ashe. Ashe. There are many others we send our love and our light to. Um, you said something key in the. Uh, I got a question for you, Pill, before you go there so I don't forget. 11 11. That's a significant number, but I wanted, if you didn't mind, Give me the reasoning or the rationale for why y'all chose 1111 to do the meditation, and then I'll tell you why. 
okay, getting into my studies about, you know, meditation and centralized times that I could synchronize my mind with others in the world that were doing this collective meditation, I considered it somewhat of a portal. Us being Scorpios, I always felt that 11 was a significant number. So the way that I could honor me and my brother, and the number 11 is like a mirror looking onto itself. So I felt that that would be a precise time for the family to pretty much, you know, interdimensionally get these invocations out to the multiverse. I got you. I got you. And the reason why I asked is because Nat Turner, the great yes. revolutionary prophet and spiritualist, you know, he was hung on 11-11, November right. the 11th, 1831. Also, in the religion of Ifa, sometimes in certain traditions, like in Santeri Apollo, the number 11 can sometimes represent the divine energy that opens up the Ashe, or the spiritual power, and that guards the crossroads, which is known as Eshu Alekba. Sometimes he's and referred to as the 1-1. One, one. As an extension of, of you know, what you're saying in those particular traditions as well, the Abedjis play a very key and significant role in the opening of that way. So in a, it's my own personal way of, again, like I said, honoring that energy as the keepers of the way or the gatekeeper, but opening those gates to the family to say, okay, this is the time when we need to penetrate, you know what I'm saying, and get our intentions and our invocations through. So, you know, it has a way of, of combining all of those things into one. And there are other, you know, there are other things as well. But definitely, that's pretty powerful. And I'm also 11-11. And I'm born on August the 21st, which is the anniversary of the Nat Turner and George Jackson's martyrdom. But I'm born in 74. 8-21-74 is my birthday. If you add 8 and 21, you get 11. And if right. you add 7 and 4, you get 11. So I'm also 11, 11. There you have it. That's why, you know, the ancestors guided you, you know, wonderfully to lead up to that time when you invoke, you know, the beautiful spirit of the brother, Tony Martin. You know, it was right on time. So, you know, this, this show is being divinely guided definitely tell by the spirit that's working through you as well. I wanted you to just elaborate a little bit deeper on something because you touched on something that I want you just to go just a tad bit deeper to give people the proper perspective of what you're talking about. And I got this off of a YouTube clip that was sent to me by our brother Ross Simeon. Shout out to him. Shout and out to Ross. I got the package, Ross. If you're listening, I got it today. I'm a and in that clip, you were speaking about culture versus religion. And that was so key to me when I heard you breaking that down. And you, you, you touched on it earlier when you said, you know, if a person is Christian, they can still invoke or honor their ancestry and things of that nature. But I want you to speak about, you know, that particular dichotomy how many years we're talking about when we talk about African history versus organized religion? 
Peace, Brother Umar. Oh, I'm sorry, Till. I was accidentally on the mute button. I heard you. I was talking, but I didn't know I was on the mute button, so let me start over. I was going to say that I always say that only a fool, only a fool would throw away 2 million-plus years of African culture for 2,000 years of Christianity or 5,000 years of Judaism or just 1,500 years of Islam. Why would you throw away that much rich knowledge and understanding of oneself and exchange it for something that isn't even a fraction as rich, as deep, or as old as what your ancestors gave you? Nobody would do anything like that. Nobody but a slave. And so what I'm saying as it relates to culture and religion is that they don't have to be mutually exclusive. For example, when I'm in Senegal, there's a lot of Muslims in Senegal. But guess what? They still practice their culture. Their Islam is practiced within the confines of the culture. In other words, anything within Islam that contradicts African culture is not practiced. They don't make the culture accommodate the religion. They make the religion accommodate the culture. A lot of Muslims here, Sunni Muslims, if they were to see the African Muslims practice Islam, they would probably say that they're kufar or that they're engaged in shirk or polytheism or devil worship or whatever because the African Muslims, not everyone, but in many places, refuse to give up their culture for their religion. Their religion is subjugated to the culture, whereas over here, because we don't know our culture or our history, we voluntarily give away our culture because we don't value it or know it and in exchange, accept the religion. As powerful a man as Muhammad ibn Abdullah was, he was only prophet of Islam for little more than two decades. Jesus Christ only taught for three years. Abraham's life, the teaching aspect of his life, was not that long. So you mean to tell me you're going to give up two million years of African culture for 23 years of Muhammad? You're going to give up two million years of African culture for three years of Christ? You want to give up two million years of African culture for, uh, what, a couple decades of Abraham? It does not make logical sense. It does not make mathematical sense. It does not make spiritual sense. And I want to be clear, not everyone is in the same boat. I know Hebrew brothers who do practice some of their African spirituality. They blend the two. I respect that. I know some Muslim brothers who are now warming up to their African spirituality but still practicing Islam. I can respect that. I know some Hebrew brothers who are doing it. I can respect that. But what bothers me is when we throw away 2 million plus for 3, 23, or 100 and say, I'm sufficient with this new thing. How in the hell And so the religions have really played a role in our condition, especially as it relates to the subjugation of our women. Now, we know all the religions say the woman must be treated like a queen, blase, blase. But 
if you're not dealing with the divine feminine principle within African spirituality, and I'm not talking no black woman is God, black man is God. I'm talking about the divine feminine and masculine principle that is the creator. If you're not balancing out your religion with the feminine essence of the creator, if you're not balancing out your religion with the masculine essence of the creator, that means your religion is imbalanced. And if you're practicing an imbalanced religion, then you are imbalanced. Your psyche is imbalanced. Your soul is imbalanced. Your spirit is imbalanced. And guess what? Our condition is also imbalanced. And part of fixing our condition as a race of people is to get ourselves back in line, in alignment with the divine energies. Now, I'm a very practical brother, very practical. Everybody knows that about me. And I don't do a lot of speaking on the spiritual. But sometimes I have to because i got to remind people that even though Brother Umar is extremely practical with what needs to be done for our condition, I understand that the foundation upon which all that work is to be done, the foundation must be a solid, a solid spiritual piece. Because without that solid spiritual piece, we won't get out of this. In fact, let me give you a theoretical question that doesn't have to be answered. It's allegorical, but I put it out there for all of the listeners tonight. Is it possible the reason why we keep on going backward, no matter how much forward progress we make as a people in this country or anywhere on earth, is it possible that one of the missing elements to our struggle is our African spirituality. Is it possible the reason why we haven't won yet in America, quote-unquote won yet, is because we have not embraced our African spirituality, which is a part of who we are? Is it possible while we're still catching as hell? It's because we are still denying our African spiritual essence. Is it possible, y'all, that no matter how many books we study, no matter how much history we learn, no matter how smart we get, is it possible that we will not overcome white supremacy until we, until we bring our ancestral army with us? Yep. That has to be dealt with. Yep, I will say that was that will definitely be one of the main issues that we need to tackle as a community. That's the missing pieces right there. Many people, Brother Umar. Yes. Many people have made the argument that spirituality, rather African spirituality, may be somewhat... What's the word I'm looking for? Overrated in these days and times because they state the fact that if it were as powerful as some say it is, and if it was as far extending as some say it was or is, then we would be seeing situations such as our oppressors or those of you know, those that are identified as, you know, our enemies being 
uh, you know, subjected to the power of their ancestors. You know, I've heard people often say, man, that magic shit don't work, man. If that shit worked, George Bush would have died a long time ago. <laughs> I, have, I, of course, have rebuttals for that because I, I, I often say to them, oh, you know, you're an ass for thinking that these Caucasians don't have a magic system of their own. Like, you, you for some reason, you think that only you can have magic. Right. You don't understand that you're spiritually, you know, being defeated by not only their energy, but your own, your own people. It's almost reverse magic. The shit that we're doing with religion and other things, we're almost damning ourselves. So what would be what would be your uh, rebuttal to people that would say things like that? Indeed. Well, first, I will start with what you just said because I thought that was an excellent intro. The other aspect is this. African spirituality is not a religion. In other words, you cannot take the basic premise of Islam and Christianity, which basically says all you have to do is believe, and God will do the work for you. That's not African religion. African religion requires you, the practitioner, to execute the spiritual power that you are given from the universe to effect change yourself. It is not passive religion. Christianity is passive. All you have to do is believe and pray, and your problems will be worked out. That is not African religion. African religion teaches that you must use the power that is given to you to effect your change. So we have to understand that African spirituality works on vibration. You can practice the religion all you want. But unless you have a very high vibration, a very strong comprehension of what is taking place, unless you have a very firm commitment to what it is you claim to believe in, nothing will happen. One thing it does have in common with the religions of the world is the need for faith and consistent practice. But you can't say, well, if African religion was effective, why didn't George Bush die? First of all, who the hell is practicing the African religion consistently enough here on a oneness? You got 40 million Africans in America, but you ain't got 40 million Africans practicing Voodoo or Dogon in concert with each other. You have individual mm-hmm. houses of African religion, and they're doing the best that they can, but you can't expect somebody to just, you know, uh, put forth a particular sacrifice for the death of a devil when they are afraid to face that devil. You got to remember, African spirituality is founded on what? Courage. It's founded on righteousness. It's founded on confronting your enemy. It's not no cowardly yeah. ass religion. Remember what happened in Haiti. Bookman died out of voodoo priest. He gave the call to arms to the Haitian Revolution. He didn't do no spell so Napoleon could die. He didn't drink nothing so Napoleon could die. They didn't yeah. cut off the heads of no chickens so Napoleon could die. They gave their sacrifices so that they could be imbibed with the spirit of God so they could carry out that victorious war, and that's exactly what happened. But they had to do the work themselves. God don't do the work. And see, what it sounds like, Pill, is you still got black people who looking for somebody or something Somebody or something to do the work for them. If you're getting into African religion hoping that by practicing African religion as opposed or spirituality, because I don't like to use that word, as opposed to Christianity or Islam, that maybe you can get God to work better for you, stay with your Bible. 
Stay with your Quran. Run with the Arabs. Don't come to African religion with that type of an expectation because you're going to be told that you have to do your own work. Yes, the spirits will open up certain pathways. Yes, certain sacrifices can be done to ease the situation, but you got to do the work. There is no sacrifice you can do in African spirituality that's going to fix your problems for you. You must do it. And if you're looking for something else to do it for you, don't even get in. Mm. Mm. They've been watching too many Hollywood movies. Talk about it. Leads me to another quote that I was able to extract from that YouTube clip. And you were speaking about um, certain tenets of psychology. And one of the quotes that you mentioned was, everything you do will either strengthen or weaken the behavior pattern, and then that becomes repetitive. Yes. You know, so if the children have seen their parents pretty much do nothing but pray and receive nothing from that, then chances are that that's going to become a repetitive pattern or they're just not going to do it at all. Exactly. 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 One thing about children, one thing about children, because they just came from that ancestral realm, their hearts is a lot more pure, and because their hearts are a lot more pure, they are able to detect falsehood way better than we can. When a child walks into a room, they can tell who cares about them and who don't. Children are very pure. And so when a child sees the parent practice a religion that really has, that they haven't been able to use to affect any change in their life, they automatically know that either something's wrong with the parent or something's wrong with the religion. So why would a child with a pure heart involve themselves with something that appears to be deceitful? Children ain't got time for that nonsense. That's why it's so important for children to go to church every Sunday. That's why they got to go to the mosque every Friday, because the purpose of the mosque and the church for a child, okay, is to erase their common sense, to erase their critical analysis, to kill mm. the desire to think freely. Now, some people who belong to religions, they might take offense to that, but it is the truth. Let's look at education, and let's look at indoctrination. Education. The school teaches the child to think, or at least it should. It should teach them to think, okay, to question everything, to develop their critical analysis skills, to become a deep thinker. That's the purpose of an education. There's no masjid in America that educates children. There's no church in America that educates children. There's no temple in America that educates children. Why? Because they are all based on teaching them what to believe, not teach them how to think. The church does not want people to think. The masjid does not want people to think. The temple does not want people to think. They want people to follow and follow blindly. So how do you get a child who is curious by nature? How do you get a child who is curious by nature to stop being curious, to stop thinking? Because let's be honest, the reason why the creator, the infinite invisible, gives children such a curious consciousness is because the creator has engineered the minds of our babies to be suspicious of everything until they find the ultimate truth. That's why all of us question. You don't have to be taught to question. You automatically question because anything that is false cannot withstand your questioning. Nothing false can withstand your questioning. 
If it's false, sooner or later, you're going to find the fallacy and you're going to leave yourself away from it. That is God. God can stand the test of time. Divinity can stand the test of time. Divinity is not afraid to be questioned. Not at all, because it's truth. God and truth are synonymous. But religion is not God. And too often we confuse the way with the goal. The means with the method. Big mistake. We equate Christianity with God. We equate Islam with God. These are not God. These are systems that man created to achieve God. And so what happens is the church in the mosque has to constantly do what? Repeat the same thing to the children. Repetition, repetition, repetition. They get punished for questions, punished for questions, punished for questions. Mommy, how do we know Jesus was the son of God? You don't ask nothing like that, boy. Jesus is the son of God because the pastor say that. Daddy, how do we know if Muhammad Ibn Abdullah was really a prophet of God? You don't ask me no questions like that. The Imam said and the Quran said that Muhammad was a prophet of God, and that's what you're going to believe. So children feel guilty about searching for the truth. They start to feel guilty about searching for the truth. And once they have been made to feel totally guilty about searching for the truth, they stop. And the minute they stop searching for the truth, that's when they become a good Christian. The minute they stop searching for the truth, that's when they become a good Muslim. I'm not looking for good Muslim children and good Christian children. In fact, if you're a good Muslim and a good Christian, you might not want your child to come to my school. I am not going to disrespect your religion, but they are going to be taught to question everything, including their religion. So if you're one of those parents who don't like your children to think about spiritual matters and just accept whatever they're taught, don't send them to the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy because you'll get your feelings hurt. For us to raise the type of warriors that we need, we got to teach our children to think, including about religion. And we're going to talk about all religions and all aspects of religion and all houses of religion. They're going to be taught about the Moorish thing. We're going to look at it from every side and corner. They're going to be taught about the Hebrew thing. We're going to look at it from every side and corner. They're going to be taught about the Nawabian thing. We're going to look at it from every side and corner. They're going to be taught about the Christian thing, the Muslim thing, or even the African spiritual systems. Everything is up for analysis because only truth can stand. So if what you believe in is truth, it will stand. Why are you so scared about the children questioning? Because deep down inside, you are insecure because you know some of the things you're teaching them ain't come from God. It came from man. Hmm. The perfect segue to my next question, and I have to ask this question. In regards to tonight's topic, okay, of what we're talking about, the illusion of inclusion, in the description, one of the first things that I listed was the fact that we were going to delve into whether this had anything to do with status. Now, yes, I've indeed. heard you. I've heard you. You know, speak before on the topic. I haven't heard you frequently touch upon it, but it would be remiss upon us if we didn't address it tonight. You know, what are your thoughts on 
the arguments that various Moors make about status being one of the denominators in this particular equation that may lead to a different standing in this political system? Good question. First of all, let me say this. I think that a lot of what the Moorish brothers and sisters have to teach is right and exact. I think the knowledge of the law is right and exact. Where I differ with them is to the extent that they think that that can bring about true freedom and independence. And my difference with them and my position is based on a sound understanding of history. My difference with them isn't profound because I do ascribe to some of what they taught. At the end of the day, His Excellency, the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey and Prophet Nu Noble Ali were political associates. Okay, They did not have a beef They worked alongside each other They had some things in common But they also respected each other's differences There was never beef there Two of my most dear elders Here in Philadelphia Both of them are Moors And they understand that I'm a Gariite There's no friction Here's my issue with the doctrine There is no people in world history Not one And I challenge anybody to find them for me No race, no nation has ever, ever, ever come out from under oppression by using law. Never have you seen one people dominated by another, whether they are in their land or not. You have never seen them gain freedom through law. Never. Anytime a people get free, they do not apply for it. They do not fill out forms. They do not go to court. When people want freedom, they die fighting for it. That has been since the beginning of time. There is no exception to that. That's my first difference. My second major difference is based on the fact that white supremacy does not respect laws. They only respect power. This is the same argument Mr. Garvey had with Drew Ali. Respectful disagreement. Show me where the white man has ever respected law. He don't. Bullies don't respect laws. That's why they're bullies. When the white man went into Libya, there was no law that gave him the right to do that. None. He did it because he said, ain't nobody going to stop me. If we want to destroy white supremacy, we got to do it with our own two hands. We got to do it with our own military science and strategy. We got to do it with our own economic and political agenda. You cannot use laws to free yourself from a devil. You cannot use laws to gain independence. Do I think that the use of law can be used as a strategy? Yes, I do. I think that in some aspects, in some places, and in some spheres, we can use that knowledge to take us to a certain distance, but it can only get us so far. Those are my two differences with the Moore's philosophy. Laws don't free people, and the white men don't respect laws. Respectfully, sir. Now, the one thing we do agree on, the one thing that we absolutely do agree on, and this is where the bridge exists between the Garveyite and the Moor, or the Pan-Africanist and the Moor, 
and that is black people in America have to stop identifying themselves as African Americans, as blacks, or as Negroes. We have to understand, and of course the more would say more, I would say African, but we have to understand, regardless of what term we use, that we have to recognize that we are a nation within a nation. And when a nation has issues with another nation, as black people have with the government of America or the white man, you don't go to the other nation's court for justice because you two are equals. So if the black nation is the equal of the white nation, the black nation has no business going to the white nation's court seeking retribution. Instead, we go where? To the world court. That's right. We go to the International Court of Justice or the International Criminal Court. We go to the United Nations. When nations have problems with nations, they go to the world court. They don't go to a domestic court. So we are on the same accord with the Moors as it relates to the fact that we do not need to be fighting our battles in America's courts because by doing so, as they say, we are subjecting ourselves to dual jurisdiction by not recognizing the fact that we are not American. I do not agree that we have to call ourselves Moors. I happen to know my ancestral tree, and my people were not here before slavery. They were brought in as slavery. So obviously there's some disagreement there because you can't feed me that because I know where my people come from, and they come from Africa. So, again, we, our relationship, my relationship with the Moors is based upon the fact that we do share some commonalities, and I think that our commonalities exceed our differences. Right now I'm working with a couple Moors brothers to talk about drawing up that paperwork to take the plight of African people to the United Nations and to the International Criminal Court, International Court of Justice. I believe that the American white man in the United States government, while President Obama is in office, should be taken to the International Criminal Court of Justice for his mistreatment of African people in this country. That is something we should try to do before that coward leaves office. And we should do it while he's in there because it shows the world that we recognize that he was not president of all the people. He was president of some of the people. And even if he was president of all the people, it recognizes that we do not acknowledge him to have any control of us because we do not fall under his jurisdiction, because we do not identify ourselves as African-American, nor is there any document in American history that identifies us as citizens of this country. We are a nation within a nation, and we need to start governing ourselves as such. That is where we unite. Hello. Let's honor the callers. Yes, it is so many hands up in the call queue. I really hope that we are able, not hope, but, you know, I want to get to a fair amount of callers, get the family involved. The people are definitely fired up. I do understand that the lines are packed, so people that listen on the computer, you may not be able to call in, but we do recommend that you download this show immediately after it's finished, uh, sometime past the 12 a.m. mark. So please let us um, start going to the callers in the call queue. With your permission, Dr. Umar? Yes, sir. Indeed. So I shall proceed and go to caller from the 215. Caller from the 215. 215-609. Caller from the 215. Peace. 
Peace, peace. Feeling the building. Umar, what up, homie? Peace and love. Who am I speaking with? Oh, my name is E, man. They call me, they call me E. I'm not going to give my government, but you just call me E. Um, no I'll message you on no Facebook. What What's going on, man? Um, you hit them in the head tonight, man. I'm I'm loving it. I think I might have heard more bombs dropped on this show than I have in a very long time. So, peace to you, man. Um, I'm 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 just I'm loving it, man. I'm loving the build, man. I love your passion. I, I love what you bring to the table. Shout out to the pills. Thank y'all for bringing Brother Johnson back on. Um, I know the family is loving it. I'm not gonna take too much time. I um. I have a quote from Immortal Technique that, that came to mind when you were speaking. I'm going to offer a disclaimer for any young listeners that are on. But um, he said, fuck a civil war between the North and the South. It's between field niggas and slaves that are stuck in the house. And I think that um that applies to the show. And I do have a offering that I would like to give to Brother Umar with the pills blessing. Indeed. Y'all know what I do. 30 seconds. Um, here we go. Khalid Muhammad, El Hajj, Malik El Shabazz. These names resonate because they made impressions that last. Both were incredible soldiers. Oh, both were incredible leaders and soldiers with class. Man in the front lines with Pan African flags. Let's take a forward flash while not ignoring the past, while enduring the drag and restoring the past. From the forgotten elder, the disillusioned youth. And the sleeping giant is not afraid to let the pistol shoot to the proximal sister and the distant brothers searching for themselves, sifting through those hidden colors. Shout out to Umar, because you are one of this generation's voices of the voiceless. So please keep doing you, God. 1,000. Give thanks. Give thanks. Hold on, Lord. You got one of those bombs for the next. What you say? I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. I, I yeah. said he got one balls for the night. <laughs> I can't wait for the more fire Friday, man. I don't want to take no more time exactly. to call us because y'all know I can go all day. But yes, yes, peace to y'all, man. Love it. This orators, griots, and everything. This Friday, more fire Friday. We are back in the building. This show will be hosted by Loaded Lux. All right, so he will be coming through, giving them that work. Please make sure that you bring out your fresh paint. You can email your submissions to us at pmorpheus at gmail. Box me on Facebook. You could, uh, you know, you can inbox us right here on Blog Talk as well. Make sure that you get us your tracks or just show up with your fresh paint this Friday. All right, so let me go to another caller. Peace, caller. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Indeed. Indeed. Caller from the 864. 
agents. Because when we when, when we look at, uh, I guess, certain kingdoms and certain uh, organizations, certain things we've had in the past, the fact that we have had agents and people that might portray to be something, but then, you know, them being something else, how do we, I, I guess, shouldn't we keep our eyes open from, you know, pretty much those types of people even planning, using using certain plans or even implementing certain thoughts on on a, on a, on a broad scale? Shouldn't, shouldn't we kind of be wary of that? Here's the thing, and I think that's an excellent question, and I thank you for it. I have a couple points to that in. Yes, there's going to be agents. We're going to have more agents than any other group. Why? Because of the lack of faith in ourselves and the lack of trust in each other. And there's two types of agents. There's official and there's unofficial. Official agents are literally on the payroll for the government. They're going to come amongst you, and you're not going to be able to necessarily recognize them. I spoke at a graduation last summer, actually two summers ago. A grandmother came up and sat next to me, and we began to talk. And she confessed to me in the conversation at the school right after the graduation speech, we were up having refreshments with the graduates, she said, I'm an FBI agent, and I've been one for the past five, ten years. And she said, it pays the bill. And I was totally mesmerized because this sweet little black woman, sweet woman, was actually an agent whose job was to report to the government any suspicious activity that anybody engaged in. Now, she didn't really know much about me, but... It was good for me to have witnessed her because most of us, when we think of agents, we're thinking about brothers who might be politically conscious, who might actually be on the payroll. They could come in all shapes and sizes, all ages and all varieties. So we have to be very, very clear about that. For example, when an elder comes amongst us, naturally, because we have respect for our elders, we put them on a certain level, we get advice from them, we ask them for direction, but we got to be a little bit careful about that too. Because if the white man knows that we respect them that much, and we could, should continue to respect them that much, we don't change the respect. But if he knows that we're going to give them unquestioned trust because they're above the age of 55, then guess what? We're going to get more agents above the age of 55. Right, Whoever right. we appear to trust the most, that's who he's going to send to us. So those are the official. But then you've got unofficial agents. Unofficial agents are troublemaking-ass black people who ain't got to be paid by the white man, who ain't got to be contacted by the white man, who ain't got to have a conversation with a white man, who will destroy anything positive just because they want to see it fail. They hate themselves, and because they hate themselves, they hate other black people. And I would argue that there's more unofficial agents than agents. We got black people out here causing trouble just to cause it without being paid. So you got to worry about both sides. But having said that, let me say this. We cannot become so paranoid where our need to identify agents succumbs our total personality and our total activity. I've seen organizations fail that way where everybody suspected everybody else of being an agent. If you study the old Black Panther Party, one of the things that really helped the government destroy the Panthers is how they became so suspicious of each other. Now, they had good motives. Because there were agents in the Panther Party, lots of them, but there weren't nearly as many agents as they thought there were agents. The suspicion breeds disunity. 
it eliminates the trust. So what is my approach to this whole agent business? I come to the table by saying they're going to be there. You're not going to be able to stop them from coming. They're always going to be amongst you. And the fact that you know they're there should keep you sharp, should keep you on your P's and Q's. So I say embrace the fact that there's agents in your organization. Embrace it. Know that they're there. And know that because you don't know who they are, you're going to have to be extra sharp with the work that you do. Be careful of who you give assignments to. Study the people who you allow in your inner circle. Because after all, our greatest leaders were killed by their right-hand man. Yep. Yep. And and and, that, and that's that's much things, bro. That's much things, and that's that's definitely a, a question that I have had on my dome. You know, especially when I look at uh the whole the movement as a whole. You know, and I I definitely I think we all should have a question like like you said. We should question the validity of a lot of things out here. So yeah. um you know I I I, I greatly appreciate the input, bro. Not a problem. Thank you for the support. Hotel, hotel, bro. Yeah, brother. Peace. Peace. Okay, hey. callers, if you can't get through, the number is 347-637. That's 347-637-2135. 347-637-2135. I do want to ask you something real quick to build on that question, that beautiful question that the brother asked. At any time, by, was there any story of us utilizing our spiritual system, our divination system, you know what I'm saying, the site of the ancestors, to pretty much, you know, ferret or met out who could possibly be the ancestors. Like, what about an intensive, an intensive initiation slash induction system where, you know, the ancestor would pretty much come up with the question or the answer for the question as to who the agent is? I believe it's possible. In fact, when I speak with the Baba, my Baba Lalo, the elder brother who I go to the does my readings uh, I'm going to ask him just that question In fact I'm pretty sure the answer is yes And the reason why I'm pretty sure the answer is yes Is because when we look at most of our generals Up until the 1900s Whether you talk about Shaka Zulu Whether you talk about um, Queen Mother Nanny of the Maroons Yaa Santiwa Whether you talk about Nat Turner Nearly every last one of them traveled with or had within their circle a priest or priestess, an African shaman, okay, whose job was to help them divine, to divinate, to ask God questions and get answers about what they were supposed to do next. So if it were impossible for a reading to be done to tell you if you had agents amongst you, or in fact, who those agents were, if that were not possible, I don't know if those men would have lived as long as they did. I don't think they would have been as successful as they were. As I was saying earlier, we have to bring the spiritual with us, and there is proof in our history that the military campaign is also a spiritual campaign, because if it wasn't, why did Shaka Zulu have a priestess by his side? Why did Matt Turner have one? Why did Gable Prosser then Mark Vesey. Why, Fidel why did they have Fidel Castro, especially Fidel Castro. He regularly consulted the priest of priests on the Cuban Revolution. 
In fact, he regularly offers sacrifices to protect his life. And you see, he's still alive, and that's a damn near miracle that man's still alive because he dealt with this spirit. And he was an Italian. So if an Italian can tap into African spirituality, you can best believe the children of Africa can tap into African spirituality. Look at the Haitian Revolution. I mean, Toussaint and Henry Christophe and Jean-Jacques Gasoline, they have Bookman Dada. Every great military general dealt with the spirit. Every last one of them had a spiritual companion who traveled with them. And that's one of the reasons, Pill, why I'm getting so deep into the African spirituality. I mean, of course, for my spirit, but also because as I get deeper into this work, when my book come out, I don't know what, what's going to happen, man. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, you know, my career is where it is. I kind of sit on top of the conscious community to some extent. Who knows what the hell going to happen when that book drops? I might get Oprah. Who knows who going to contact me as a result of that book? And you know the crack is coming because I'm I'm, I'm taking a punch at the $50 billion psychiatric drug movement. They're not going to be happy about that. So with this book coming out and coming out when it's coming out in 2012, excuse me, 2013, I don't know what's about to happen, you know, and I don't want to get overwhelmed by the attention. I don't want to get overwhelmed by the haters or by the white man who's coming, nor do I want to get overwhelmed by any potential success that might come. So I'm really buckling down now spiritually because I think with this book I might be going to a whole other level that might potentially could put me in a position to open up that school faster, do some things in Africa faster, help us rise as a people faster, and I don't want to fumble that ball. So I'm constantly checking in with my spiritual advisor because I don't want to make the mistake. I don't know how long I got, and that's not a question that I want to know. So that's never nothing that I would ever ask to be divinated for me. I do not want to know how long I got to last. Okay, about however long that I'm going to be here in this particular life, because I'm sure i got many to follow, but this particular life, I want to do as much as I can while I am here. I mean, look at yes. Dr. King, 39. Malcolm, 39. Marcus Garvey, 63. Booker T. Washington, early 50. Medgar Evers, 36. I mean, when you look at our soldiers, many of them didn't last that long. I'm 38 yes. already. I'm less than a year away from King and X when they checked out. So understanding that, I'm sticking really closely to my spiritual advisor, not out of fear either, but just to make sure I can maximize any potential benefit that comes to me for my race. I'm literally trying to live my life for the people, period. I'm literally, I'm literally not trying to have a selfish pain in my body. Any success that I have automatically accords to my people. So that's where I'm trying to stay. But I'm really, really trying to get focused because when this book drops, I really don't know what type of openness that's going to have for me. And I really think, you know, that the Most High, the Orisha, I really think that the spirits, my ancestors, the Agoon, the collective ancestors, the Agoon, Agoon, I really think that they're going to help me push. You know what I mean? So now's the time for all of us to really, 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 really start checking in with ourselves spiritually. If there's anyone who's looking to get a reading, you say, look, you know, I I never really heard too much about this African stuff, but I wouldn't mind getting the reading just to see what he said. You know what I mean? They can text me for the information for the Babalawo that I use, and I will text them his information. And the reason why I recommend him is because he does my readings, and the brother told me stuff about me that nobody knew but me, you know, and there were certain things that he said that I knew that he was legitimate. Not only that, he went through an initiation. Okay, he's an actual Babalawo, which means keeper of the secrets in Ifa. 
And it's not easy to become a babalabo, and that's what he is. So you got to go through a whole series of initiations. It ain't no joke, and that's what he did. So not only did he go through the initiation, he actually was able to tap into the power because he read me like I've never been read before. So if anybody's looking at getting a reading, all you got to do is text my text my uh, cell number, and I will text you with information. Just let them know you was referred by Dr. Umar Johnson. Okay, and or you can Facebook me for you can email me whatever your means of communication with me is fine. Uh, my phone number area code two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. Again, area code two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. There's a slim chance that after the book comes out, I might have to change my number, only because there's so many more phone calls I'm going to be getting, which means my voicemail is going to stay even more packed than it is now. So if I change my number, I just want people to know they because. I'm not trying to be accessible to the grassroots people. It might just be something I need to do to make sure that I'm able to handle all the extra contacts that I'm going to be getting. But I'm still going to be accessible with Facebook, email. But I am going to try to keep this phone so people can reach me too. But, again, my number, 215-989-9858, email, drumarjohnson at yahoo.com, Twitter, Dr. Umar Johnson, Facebook, Dr. Umar Ifatunde, that's I-F-A, U-N-D-E, Dr. Umar Ifatunde on Facebook, and of course the website, DrUmarJohnson.com. If you haven't ordered the new book, Psychoacademic Holocaust, Special Education and ADHD Wars Against Black Boys, it comes out February 1st. Make sure you go on my website tonight and order the book now so you get your free Psychoacademic Holocaust DVD to go along with the book. If you wait until February 1st, you're going to have to pay for it, order it separately, but as a special promotion for people who are supporting me by buying the book before the due date, the date, the release date, you will get that special DVD for free. So make sure you go to drumarjohnson.com and order that. For the bookstores, I've been getting a lot of emails from the bookstores. I will have a um, discounted rate, bulk rate for the bookstores who want to sell. I know Black and Nobel, they hollered at me. Um, also, um, Pyramid Books in South Florida, they hollered at me. A lot of people have been hollering at me. Uh, Brother Not T, everyone's place in Baltimore. You know, just a lot of bookstores and sending me a lot of love saying they want to cover the book, so I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. All right, shout out to Brother Nati. Shout out to Black and Nobel. Shout out to all of the bookstores. Okay. All right. Um, you still got these callers in the call queue. Definitely want to get some more family in the bill. Let me go to caller from 704. 704 574. 704 caller. Peace. Yeah, yeah, peace. What's good? Peace. Peace and love, family. What's good? Listening to the show, I'm loving everything, man. And um, just want to touch up on, I heard you talking about, I heard uh, the last brother talking about the, uh, the spy joint, the agents. And I felt like, you know, sitting back and analyzing some of the movements was uh, the movement where we had the abolished. The Ebonics was very important in our movement because it made these crackers scramble. Like, they had to go get a book on everything that we were saying because we were speaking in code again. And I think that's how we got back into it. We got to get back to speaking in a kind of code and speaking into a kind of, you know, speaking with symbols and stuff. I think a lot of it, a lot of where we are now is symbol illiterate. We can't, we don't know, you know, the golden arches of McDonald's might mean something but we don't even know what it means. And I think that's what we got to get back on, too. And uh, to touch on the African spirituality, the problem with religion is 
it's it's a form of eugenics. It's uh when you uh, evoke nothing but the masculine energy of God, you're dealing with the left side hemisphere of uh, of the brain, which is in charge of outside thinking. And that's the reason why we're always looking for a savior to save us from outside. And I feel like, you know, you touching on the spirituality, really, that's really where it hit home for me because it shows that the imbalance can also be seen in our parasympathetic and our sympathetic nervous system. So we, it's a, it's alignment of the body that we have to get also together to this way we can also build on unity and to get deeper into the spirituality of Africa. And I really feel like this is the kind of discussion that we all need, though. We we definitely need this kind of discussion. We need our own think tanks and everything. I've been preaching this for a minute now. Indeed. Definitely want to give thanks to his comments, brother. Yeah, um, just wondering, uh, what's call it? What, uh, like, it's, you know, what, we, what dialogue else or where can I reach anybody, you know, so we can start speaking about off the grid, you know what I'm saying, instead of, you know, doing everything publicly, you know what I'm saying? Right. I think the brother right. gave his, his number out earlier, um, you know, you can just make the connect and then follow through. Okay. Uh, yes, indeed. I'll throw it out there again, area code 215-989-9858. Um, I'd be so busy. I mean, feel free to definitely hit me, you know what I mean? But I'd be so busy. A lot of times I carry the conversations on by way of uh, text messaging or by way of email or Facebook. So please don't get offended, you know. <laughs> you know, if you catch me at the right time, because I always answer my phone, so I'm not testing any children or in any meetings or anything like that, radio interviews, because I'm always doing those. You know, I'll pick up the phone. You know, sometimes I'll just pick up people say, I didn't think I'd get you. You know what I mean? Because whenever yeah. I'm free, like if I'm taking my ride, you know what I mean? Like I'll be riding up to New York this coming Wednesday. That'd be a good time to catch me because, you know, I'll just be riding. So I love to have conversations because I love to talk to the people. And one thing I never want to be is that type of scholar who you can't reach. You know, I know a lot of guys, they function like that. They want to be treated like celebrities. I'm not one of those type of dudes. You know, I'm a regular type of dude. You catch me chilling in the restaurant with you. Like, a lot of times people walk up on me, they don't even know it's me because I have on my street clothes with my Phillies hat. I ain't got no suit. I'm like, wait a minute, that's Dr. Umar? I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I'm like, wow, you know, let's take a picture, blah, blah. You know what I mean? So be accessible. You know, that's one thing that I'm going to be. I'm always going to have to be accessible. I mean, as I grow, of course, I'm going to have to put a team around me, but I'm going to always yeah, make sure, you know, people can get to me. You know, so definitely, you know, feel free to hit me up, man. And two one five nine eight nine nine eight five eight. If my voicemail is full, feel free to text me. You okay. know what I mean? And uh, I can hit you back like that as well. Um, okay. Just to let the people know, if I could, real quick, till you know, folks always want to know where I'm gonna be next and that sort of a thing. So I wanted yes. to let people know just a couple of the upcoming events. The Black History Month schedule is still being built. But uh, it looks like I'm going to be starting off at Prince George's Community College. I think y'all were down there before, right, Bill, at Prince George's Community College? That's the family yeah, out there. Shout out to the family, Prince George. You know what I'm saying? You're going to love it, there. Oh, yeah, that's family yeah. right there. Yeah, I'm going to be there on the 5th. I'm going to be there on the 5th of February. I'm going to be in Houston. Finally coming to Houston on my ancestors. Frederick Douglass's Earth Day. I know they celebrate Valentine's or whatever with that, but 
uh, Thursday, February the 14th. I'm finally coming to Houston. So for my family in Houston, I know y'all been waiting for me to get there. I ain't been there yet, but finally on Frederick Douglass Earth Day, I'll be in Houston. So that's going to be special. And then on the 18th, Monday the 18th, which is so-called President's Day, I'm going to be in Dayton, finally coming to Dayton, Ohio, at Wright State University, Wright State University, Monday, February the 18th. Also what we got, University of Washington, D.C. on the 27th. And, of course, my organization, Team Pan-African, we got our meeting of the minds the first weekend in March. That's going to be up in Detroit. Okay, so we're looking forward to that. Also, I'm going to be in uh, Richmond, Virginia, March the 15th, Richmond, Virginia. I'm going to be in Newport News, Virginia, with Sister Karen Cooper on March the 23rd with the brother Tahuti Ma'at Ra, the health brother out of West Coast. I'm going to be in Arizona with Sister Zuri, March 28th to March the 31st. Uh, Trenton, New Jersey, April the 6th, Boston. I'm coming to Boston, Massachusetts. Sunday, April the 7th, we're going to do Boston. Uh, we're going to be doing a Black Star Conference in Chicago, April the 13th. Jackson, Mississippi, April 18th to the 21st. Um, and I got more dates coming. I'm still they still coming in, so they'll be on my website. They'll also be on Facebook, so just make sure y'all stay tuned. Also on Twitter, I put everything up on Twitter, but I'm sure it's going to be a packed schedule as always. We gotta get you a bus, bro. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! I, 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 I'm looking into that now, to be honest with you, bro, because I want to do roll a national you, book tour. You know what I'm saying? So the family can roll out with you and go. Man, that'd be powerful, man. Uh-huh. That'd be powerful, man. We could do like, you know, a conscious tour. We could, uh, you know, do like a, a real world show on that joint. Had that thing video would be live streaming while we be politicking on the bus and politicking at the venues. I mean, that's a real powerful thing. I'm looking at the prices on those Winnebago's in, in, in portable homes. Well, please, you know what I'm saying, shout your brother out. I'll clear the schedule. We'll, we'll take this show on the road, you feel me, because that's what we need to do. We definitely need to touch the family in 2013. Everywhere they're at, they need, they need this nutrition in the form of this food, and they need that information, and they need that inspiration. You know what I'm saying? So please, uh... You know, don't forget us out the mix. And plus, the Bronx family want to see you when you come to New York as well. So I'm going to call you off the line and see if we can work anything out. Sure, sure. You know what I'm saying? These young soldiers want to come out. Uh, so let's do this. Let's go to another caller. Shout out to the caller from the 704. All right? All right. Peace, bro. Y'all keep it up. Indeed. Follow through as well. No, definitely. Definitely. All right. Peace. Peace. Let's go to caller from 702-702-418 out in the West Coast. 702. Peace to the 702. Caller from Vegas, 702. All right. We go to caller from 516-516-610, 516-610. Caller, peace. Peace, 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 and blessing. Hey, my brother Umar, the Sister X, man. I love it, I love it, and I love you, what you're saying, my brother. <laughs> Give thanks, Queen. Give thanks. You know what I'm saying? I just love it. Oh, my goodness. Man, listen, is there any way we can protect you? Because I know when this book comes out, this beast is going to try to be, you know, at your random. So is there any way everybody could just get together, be your private security, or do some shit? 
because we can't afford to lose you, man. Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm going to keep y'all posted on that. You know, Sister X, you always been by my side. I got nothing but love for you. You know what I mean? I got a nice little security team. You know what I mean? We just going to have to get serious about it With the, after the book drop. You know, I've been having brothers from all over, believe it or not. Every city I go to, I get brothers who come up to me and volunteer. They say, hey, whenever you're in my city, let me know. I'll put a team to you. You know, so it's good, you know, to see brothers and sisters, you know, stepping up, offering their services for me like that because I get it. You know, everywhere I go, man, from New York to Texas to L.A. to Florida. So, you know, and I think I am going to start calling on folks. I mean, you know, up until now, i just been kind of, you know, I, I, y'all know how I roll. i just be like on some innocent, I'm just cool, you know what I'm saying? But once the book come out, I'm definitely going to have to get a little bit more conscious about my security. I really am. The elders been telling me this since the beginning of time, you know what I mean? But now I do see it. You know, for the first time, I see it myself, and I'm going to have to be a little bit more Conscious about my security, where I eat, what I eat, who I eat from, because you know that's how they got solid. That's how they get us. So, you know, definitely after the book drop, I'm, I'm really going to get a little bit more military minded than I have, and I got to stop being so happy go lucky with it now. And you know, brother, after the show, give me a two quick minute call because I need to tell you something. And on top of it, I love what you're doing, my brother, and I respect you wholeheartedly. And if I can ever help you in any kind of way. You know, just give the thanks a shout, and after the show, give me a quick two-minute call. Peace and hold Will hotel. do. Will do. Give thanks, caller. Hi, peace. All right, now, I want to make a comment, and I don't want it to come off the wrong way, but I want to set a precedent because there are a lot of young people that are listening to you, a lot of our young warriors, and the people will walk in your footsteps. Um... Do you think that's responsible for leadership in terms of, you know, being free and somewhat, you know, open arm and, and, and welcome into the world in terms of taking certain things to eat, going certain places without security? If one is considered an asset to their community, do you think that they should make those initial uh, arrangements from the door? Um. That's a good question, Pill. That's a good question, and it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Here's I don't want to to make nah, it, you know, nah. anything uncomfortable. I just want no, not at all, not at all. Here, here's my thinking on the security. Like when people always actually say, "Well, you should have security already. Why don't you?" And this is the answer: Once you're seen with security, you pretty much have to always have it at that time. Right. Because whenever you're not seen with it, you look vulnerable. Let's take, for example, Minister Farrakhan. He always has security. So if you saw Minister Farrakhan walking down 125th, you'd probably be a little concerned because you say he always got security. So when a person right. always has security, all of a sudden don't have security, they look vulnerable. And people who are used to seeing a with security, if they got beef or anything with them, they might try something that they otherwise would never have tried. So with me, I think what has kept me from having security up until now is because I'm such a solo, happy-go-lucky type dude where once I decide to have security travel with me, that's going to be a permanent change for my life. I'm going to have to always have them. And so... I've kind of tried to stay low-key up until now, but if that becomes necessary, 
And that's going to be a very significant lifestyle change for me that I'm going to have to adjust to because with that also goes my privacy. With that also goes my privacy. You know what I mean? So in terms of the whole relationship aspect of life and, you know, I'm really going to need to find that queen and settle down with, you know what I'm saying, because everything is really going to get locked in at that point. You know, and when you leave this earth, we always know that people in the inner circle always look to get paid by writing books about the secrets of the people who they gave security to. So, all, you know all what the I mean? I share time with in relationships. So, you yeah, got to exactly. be very mindful yeah, yeah, about Yeah, I got to be very careful about that, you know, all the way around the page, you know. But I definitely think it's where I'm headed. It's really going to be difficult for me to continue doing the work that I'm doing and not have security after this book come out because put it like this, the black world knows of me now, but when the book come out, the white world will know of me. Up until this point, I've been kind of able to stay away from them to an extent. They know me because they make it difficult for me to do my work, but it ain't been on a national scale. With my face being on the cover of that book, no matter where I go, they're going to see me and what I stand for. So uh, it's really going to be necessary for me to be a little bit more security conscious once that book come out because now everybody will know that face when they see it. And I'm going to need to definitely start taking some steps, you know, for security. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. Um, Go to this call queue. Bring another caller in. Let's go to caller from 301. Caller from the 301-569. 301 caller. Hold on one second. Red, you still on the line? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? Can you work the, um, the call queue from your end? I might be having some internet problems. All right. What number were we looking at? 301-569. All right. Call it from the 301-569. Peace. Can you hear me? Yes, What's sir. Up? Loud and clear. Okay, look, check this out. Yeah, um, y'all was talking earlier about the agents and stuff, and I was also thinking on top of that, we need to do something like a secretive thing because, uh, you know, like what's the what's dude, uh, um, they were talking about how um, you can't, every every nation they don't have secrets, don't have a nation. You understand what I'm saying? Mussolini said that. So we don't have no secrets. What do we have? So I'm thinking, like, you know, we do a lot of lectures. We do a lot of radio shows. Everybody share all the information on Facebook as soon as they see it in the lecture. What I'm saying is so when are we going to do, like, a, kind of like the A.A. Rashid thing and go into our own black Illuminati type of thing? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Because if we don't, yeah. we, we're not getting nowhere if Brother Umar do a, do a lecture or if they do a KTL radio show and all the information is, is, is open to everybody. I follow where you're coming from. Uh, here's my position. I do think we need to have secrets, but those secrets will primarily be secrets that will be kept away from the African public because... Yeah our people are too willing to work against our own best interests. 
So I think we do need to operate in secret on some level with some things because you can't share everything with black people because they'll sabotage your work. However, we can't, we, it, it would be difficult to keep almost anything away from your enemy because of his surveillance technology. You have no secrets in America. Every telephone conversation, every email, every face-to-face discussion, even when you meet outside, I mean, he got satellites that can listen to an ant on the ground carry food down into the sand. So we got to, we got to also be realistic. And what I mean by that is not trying to be so uh, secretive to the point where, you know, you're kind of wasting your time because you can't keep anything from him. But I do agree with you. I definitely think we need to be secretive amongst our community because there's a lot of people who look like us who will work against our own best interests. But as far as the white man goes, you really can't keep a secret from him, not in this day and age with the technology that he got. But so what? We must still work our plan and plan our work. Okay? We we cannot become arrested by the fact that he's knowing what we're doing. My, my, my concern isn't him knowing. My concern is if it's within my destiny or your destiny to, you know, leave here early or be arrested or whatever the case is, that we have nobody to pick up where we left off. That's my worry. When Marcus Garvey died in 1940, there was no significant Pan-Africanism until Kwame Nkrumah and then till Malcolm X. You know, when, when, when King was killed, no one has picked up yet. Malcolm was killed. No one has really picked up yet. Negger, no one picks up. So my my concern isn't so much about him knocking us off because, as Marcus Garvey said, you know, we're going to have to die and we have to be replaced. The problem is not in us dying, I mean, because you died for something. As far as I'm concerned, that's an accomplishment. Look at all the black men who die for nothing every day. I mean, literally, dying for nothing. So to die for something is a blessing. My concern is making sure we got somebody to replace us, not five years later, not 10 years later, not 20 years later, but the very next day. The reason why we cannot sustain momentum, the reason why we have not been able to sustain momentum in our movements is because we do not have continuity of leadership. We do not have continuity of leadership. And one of the biggest reasons why we do not have continuity of leadership is because most black leadership is ego-based. We have to be honest. Most black leadership is ego-based, and an ego-based leader does not want to accept the fact that he or she is not going to be around forever. That's why most black organizations do not train successors. There's no national black organization that has a training program for successive leadership. None of them do because the people in charge expect to be there for the next 1,000 years. They do not want to embrace their fact the fact that one day they may have to step down or one day they may have to die. They don't want to embrace that fact. And as a result of that, no one is prepared to take their place after they die. And when they pass on, that organization has to do what? Go through a whole new reorganizational process because the person in charge led through ego and they led through charisma. They didn't lead through organization. And that is one of the biggest problems of black institutions. I don't care if it's the church. I don't care if it's the bougie-ass NAACP or the bougie-ass Urban League. I don't care if it's the nationalist organizations. None of them have a program for leadership continuity. That is one of our biggest problems that is really talked about. Wow. Like, do you, okay, even, well, see that, do you even see that on the business level? 
Like yeah. even on a business level, on the business they... level, unless they have children. If they have children, there tends to be some degree of continuity of leadership on the business level. But even then, it's not as good as what it should be because a lot of people die and leave their businesses in disarray having never trained their children, okay, and that, and having never uh, trained a replacement. So you see it even in the business. So you can build a multi-million dollar business, and then when you die, nobody knows how to operate it because you really didn't leave a legacy for how to do that. You see it all in every institution where we are, business, politics, entertainment, economics. Why? Because we want to live forever. Whereas with the white man, you see what the Jew does. What does the Jew? The Jew trains his son. So as soon as he gets the old age, the son takes over. The Jew's still getting paid now, but his son has taken over. You see it with the Italian, the Arab, the East Indian, the Anglo-Saxon. You see it with everybody. But you, you see it with the Chinese man. You don't see it with us. They pass the torch, and they fall back, not with black yep. leaders. Black leaders want to die with their boots on. They do not know how to pass the torch. We got organizations in this country that are electing 70- and 80-year-old presidents. That doesn't make – at 80 years old, I don't need to be the president of shit at 80. I'm supposed to be an advisor. At 80 years old, I'm supposed to be an advisor. I'm supposed to be a confidant. I'm supposed to be giving counsel. I'm supposed to be a member of the Council of Elders. I am not supposed to be getting elected president, president of an organization at 80. That is ridiculous. You see it all the time. Why we keep electing older people like that? It's because they don't want to pass the torch. And until the elders learn how to pass the torch, it doesn't mean that they lose their influence. It doesn't mean they lose their control. It doesn't mean they lose their authority. You only lose one thing. Do you know what that is? The limelight. All they lose is the limelight. And that's why the ego is the enemy. Because you don't even want to give up the limelight for the sake of the people. Now, some people, Pill, would probably say, well, Dr. Umar, can you give me some reasons why it's not good for elderly people to be presidents of revolutionary organizations? Well, sure. Number one, the older you get, the more conservative you get. Somebody at 80 is not going to put up the same fight as somebody as 30 because in your 80s, you're winding down. You're reflecting on life. You've been working your whole life, so you want to take some time to just enjoy your existence in your golden years. So naturally, you're not going to be in a rush to die because you live so long that you want to enjoy the last few years. So they're not going to put up the same type of fight. You're not going to get the same momentum, okay? Another reason why, the older you get, you lose your idealism. At our age, brothers and sisters, we're still idealistic. We believe we can destroy white supremacy in our lifetime. We believe we can make a significant push for black redemption right now, and we should. Because as young people, we are responsible for being idealistic. The people live through the ideas of the youth. Look at all the great leaders. They were all young, of any race, not just black, any race. The leaders are young because the idealism is with the youth. 
the older you yep. get, the more cynical you get, you start giving up the idealism. And what's the third reason why it's not good? Recruitment. You need bodies, not just for war, but for finances, for building, for services. You need bodies. Older people are not very charismatic. Charisma is a quality of the young. The older you get, you tend to lose the charisma more. All due respect, take Minister Farrakhan, for example. He's a phenomenal speaker, a master orator, okay? But he can't hold a crowd today the way he held a crowd 30 years ago. He's getting older. So naturally, as he gets older, he has to look for other leadership to take his place. That's what anybody, even if you look at the sellout, Sharpton, Jesse, Jesse Jackson can't hold a crowd today the way he could 30 years ago. It's changing. The charisma is with the youth. The idealism is with the youth. The courage is with the youth. The boldness is with the youth. And that's why the face of the movement should be young. Okay? Once you get up in your age and you're hitting them 60s, it's time to start thinking about a replacement. I don't see anything wrong with a 40-year-old leader. I don't see anything wrong with a 50-year-old leader. But once you hit them 60s, now it's really time to start bringing in somebody who's a couple of decades younger. No other race has this problem except the African. Uh, Red Okay, I got my board working We can go to another caller now All right All right, let's go to Caller from 973 973 caller 973-873-973 Peace to the caller If you have any questions, comments, or concerns Peace caller Caller from the 973 Okay. We're gonna to go to caller from the eight six oh eight six oh eight sixty six eighty eight sixty six eighty call a piece. Hello, can me? Yes, Hello. I can peace. Yes. How you doing brothers tonight? And this is Eric from peace the, and love. the place the place where most people still heartbroken, crying over the poor white children, some part in Newington, Connecticut, because that's the Connecticut area code. <laughs> but uh, my question um, In regards to accountability Because that's a problem we have As a nation of people Because all the other races don't When we have these type of issues When we deal with sellouts Or whatever type of issues within the race We don't have no sense of accountability Because we know every other race Deals with this heavily and swiftly But when it comes to us Not one type of accountability So that's like some of them get off easy to go continue there and what we call fuckery. What is your view on that, Omar? Well, number one, I agree with you. Sustainability, and we need accountability. But there can be no accountability without organization. And earlier, when we talked about the talented Tims, the black elites, the bourgeoisie, the aristocracy, they hate accountability. They would work night and day against the system of accountability. You know why? Because you would be able to make them responsible for their behavior. Rich black people do not want to be accountable to other black people. Jay-Z don't want to be accountable to Brooklyn. Oprah Winfrey don't want to be accountable to Chicago. Al Sharpton don't want to be accountable to New York. So as we organize ourselves and force them to be accountable, you will see a change in their behavior. The reason why it's so easy to sell out black people is because there's no consequences. There is no consequences for betraying black people, and the whole world knows it. The whole world knows it. 
one of the reasons why we don't get as much respect as we would like to get is because we don't hold our traders accountable. People look at us and laugh. They say, how could Al Sharpton get away with being Obama's personal uh, publicist and black people not get on him for kissing Obama's behind like that for four straight years? It's because there's no accountability. Jesse Jackson, no accountability. Cornell West, all these black rich men with these white women, no accountability. They couldn't do that nowhere else. You would not see all these black men with white women if they belonged to another group. They wouldn't allow that nonsense. But you can do that with us because we don't have any accountability. And that relates to another problem. And that problem is that as black people, we tend to be loyal to personalities instead of principles. That's another artifact of the worship of personality and the cult of personality. You should not be loyal to people but loyal to principles. For example, anyone who's loyal to me and my work should be loyal not to Dr. Umar, but I'm loyal to Dr. Umar as long as he fights for our children. But if Dr. Umar go and work for one of the psychiatric drug companies because they paid him to keep his mouth shut, then guess what? Dr. Umar has now become the enemy of our people. I want mm-hmm. people to be loyal to the principles yeah. that I stand for. Don't be loyal to me because I can change today or tomorrow. People can change any given day. Now, I know I will never do that, but y'all don't know yeah. that. Stay loyal to the principles. Never be loyal to the people. People will betray you, but principles last forever. This is true. This is true. Oh, yeah, another thing. Um, um, yeah, friends, that guy's got that man. limited. <laughs> But um, one thing I want to say um, because I have a lady that um, because she has a bookstore, she was trying to contact you in regards to your book that's supposed to be released in another week and a half, I believe. And she was un- uh, yes, it should be out the first week of February, definitely by the second week, depending on how long it take them to print it up. Yeah, um, she's been trying to contact because she does want this particular her your book in the store, but she was unsuccessful because at times I buy from her still. And I try to support her and try to get particularly this literature out because she has a, a wide range of books, but in particular with this, with this, with the children, this must necessary. She, she, I told her necessary to have it out in her store because she already has a few books that deal with children, but this will be very more helpful. So you know, um, her name is Cleo still from um Call Books. I'm, I'm not sure if you ever got a chance to get any of your emails. Cause I know I've been flooded from what you've been, what you've been talking about tonight. It might be difficult, but, you know, <laughs> that's my thing. You call us? Oh, yeah, indeed. Yeah, so, you know. Hello? 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 Yes, I'm still here. Yes, you know, that's the only thing I like to say, Omar. If you do get a chance to um, see if she still send a contact, because she tried more than once, so, so that's the only thing. Um. Uh, okay. Twins, one other, other thing, Twins, um, I could download this program tonight because this, this is a pretty good format. I'll probably see if I could keep this on. Yes, you can. Yes, yeah, you can go into the archives when the um, program is finished and you definitely could download. All right. Is it on your, on your website or on the Facebook? Because I'm not sure how this will work, though. So the, um, All the, the links are available on Facebook. You can go directly to the blog talk page, which is Know the Ledge. All right, Know the Ledge Radio. It'll be available. Download, but like I said, you can catch the link through Facebook as well. 
right. And, uh, and keep up with the strong work, Mr. Mr. Johnson. Um, and, oh, and, oh, one more last question. Um, I have a sister that's trying to get on to the um, black woman. Um, what do you call it? Cause we, I, I'm on the black men's um, black men's um, teleconference. But I was, okay, the uh, be men and the be queen teleconference. Yeah. Yes, sir. We're going to be starting them back up in March. February is going to be kind of busy for me, so we're okay. going to take a little break for February, but we're going to start it back up in March, and it's going to be the same number as before, um, mm-hmm. and I'll post that again. I'll post it on Twitter, Facebook, the website. You can also text me for it, but we'll probably be starting up the first weekend in March. Okay, well, look, the one thing you can do for me, I think I might send a text about it. Um, if you do get a chance sometime, just read the text and just send me the, the number for that, and I'll give it to her until I want Will to start do. back up again. All right, thank, thank you. Guys. No problem. And I'll, I'll continue this thing. All right, peace. Bro. Okay, we have a few more hands up. Let's get to these callers. Caller from caller from the two six seven. Let's go to caller from the two six seven two six seven eight eight four two six seven caller. Peace. Hello. Greetings. Hi, how are you? All is well, love. Good. Um, I have a question for Umar. Um, hi, Umar. Peace and love. The voice sounds familiar. Who, who, <laughs> who is this, good sister? Say that again. Katrina. Oh, Katrina, what's up, Trey? <laughs> hey. So, listening to um, what you're talking about, sustainability of leadership, right? Um, I had a question as far as um, I had a professor who talked about there being a face of a movement and the actual brains of a, of a movement. So whereas, you know, the face but like Al Sharpton is the face of a movement, just for, you know, um, conversation sake. But the actual brains of a movement is someone else, someone that, right. you know, the um, just say people who want to, you know, take a leader down, they may take the face down, but the brains still remain. So exactly. what do you think about that in terms of, you know, really being able to sustain the movement and the message within the movement? I think that concept that you're speaking of flows smoothly with the concept of elders being the advisor and the youth Mm -hmm. being the leader. The face is used to attract people to the organization, to the movement. Take the United Mm -hmm. States presidency. That's a good example. Obama Mm -hmm. is the face. Mm -hmm. He's the charismatic. He's the voice. He's the handsome one. He's not the brains. He don't make the decisions. You follow me? All he does Mm -hmm. is articulate them. The bankers who control America and control the world, they're not charismatic. They're not attractive. It's an old white man. Nobody want to listen to them give a speech. So Obama is the face of white supremacy, but he's not the Mm -hmm. brains. I totally agree with you. We're supposed to function the same way. Our brains is our council of elders. They're the ones who I sit down with and say, okay, Dr. Umar, we've been thinking. We figure we should move this way. We should strategize that way. So I soak up their wisdom, and then Mm -hmm. I articulate that into a message to the people. The people stay focused. They stay attracted because they're attracted to the face. But the wisdom that I am speaking is their wisdom. Take Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, a never good example. 
Andre Elijah Muhammad didn't have Malcolm's oratory. He didn't have his height. He didn't have his attraction. He couldn't do what Malcolm did. So Malcolm would speak, but a lot, not all, but a lot of the wisdom was Mr. Muhammad's. So mm-hmm. when you look at any great movement, you've always had that where the face was not necessarily the brains. And I think that's the way that it should be because you can always switch the face. But right. if there's a continuity of the brain power behind that movement, it will be sustained. But right. in order for that to happen, the elders have to be willing to be elders and stop trying to be the face of the movement. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, I have one more question. So um, I know your book is coming out. Are you going to do a national book tour? And if so, are you going to do readings at the, you know, instead of just building questions, maybe do some readings of the book as well on tour? I'm going to definitely do the readings of the book. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the National Book Tour. Here's the only thing that's preventing me from doing it, and I'm Mm -hmm. probably sure that I will do it. It's the fact that I already speak so much now. And so I'm wondering, do I need a separate book tour, or do I just simply need to discuss the book whenever I'm invited places to speak? Because Go ahead. No, I was just saying I think more people would come out for the book tour alone. I mean, I know that you speak, you know, frequently, but I think in order to really get the book in people's hands, um, uh-huh. you know, it would be beneficial just to have a book tour. You know what I, I think, mean? Yeah. Just to go out there and really promote the book. In the black community, that's something that's kind of built in. When you release a book, people want to not only patronize your endeavors and your efforts, but they want to see you, shake your hand, you know what I'm saying, to tell you how much they appreciate the work that's being done. Now they have a tangible item that they can not only take home, but they could bring their grandmother out, you know what I'm saying, they could bring different people out because especially females, they have a different understanding of scholarship in terms of getting books. Okay, now we have something that we can read. We're just not coming to see him talk, which they probably associate with something that might be a little bit more masculine energy. Feel me? That's a good point. Real good point. All right. Well, I mean, those were just my questions, so thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, caller. Peace. Okay, we're going to take two more calls before we uh, conclude for this evening. Again, family, we do want to remind you over at ktlmedia.com, we have a donate button. Uh, we would like to keep the cycle spinning, keep the circle spinning for that matter. So give back to that which gives freely, and we can keep the cycle moving. Okay. Let me go to caller. Caller from 916. Caller from 916. 916. Caller 381. 916. Caller. Peace. And that would be me. Good evening or good morning there, brothers. This is Catherine California. Red pill, blue pill, and Brother Umar. This is so wonderful to hear this information. Um, and ironically, I'm kind of on the same basis as the sister who just called. Um, I would love to. I will call you separately, but I would love to get you out to California. Um 
the consciousness in my area, I would love to have you come speak and open some brains. <laughs> because this is a very religious city, and sometimes it's really hard to just deal with the attitudes of people. And I would love to have you come out. Do you ever get out to this this area? I spoke in Los Angeles um, three times. Um, the first was December of uh, 2011, uh, and then I spoke November of 2012, and then I spoke December of 2012. So I kind of came right back by demand. Uh, which city are you in, Gassist? I'm in Sacramento. Never been outside of L.A., so I would very much be interested in coming there. And I have venues that we could use because I'm in the art area here, and so we have a lot of galleries, and these are um, good places where people come anyway. We have, like, every second Saturday we have poetry and things like that. But I would love to do that, so I will get in touch with you separately. And then um, my other question is (sighs) we get this knowledge, you know, I'm learning, and as I said, I'm in a um, a present um, community. So what can I do? How can I um, take this knowledge that I know and, you know, how do I spread this other than, like, having you come speak? But, you know, sometimes I get frustrated, like, you know, Knowledge is there, and just people are just into their daily ruts, I guess. So what can I do? Well, I think one of the things that you could do, uh, actually two things, or one thing in two different forms, we have to go back to our study and discussion circles that we used to have, you know, before the Internet came upon us, you know, um, we would always have study groups. You know, once a week, twice a month, we would come together, choose a book, read a couple articles, and discuss it. We need to do that again because it facilitates shared vision. It builds unity. It really helps us improve our relationships with each other. It, it, it builds family atmosphere. We have to go back to study groups. So many cities have given up their study groups for the lecture model of information. And don't get me wrong, we still need to do the lectures. I mean, obviously I'm a lecturer, but there's nothing like discussion. Now, my organization, Team Pan-African, we just had this, uh, our first meeting of the minds in Fort Lauderdale, Florida this past weekend, and it was beautiful. I mean, so many people got an opportunity to say things they never had an opportunity to say. Everybody was able to build off everybody else's comments, their opinions. I mean, it was just so – it's one of the best unity-building events I've been to in a long time. And I'm not saying it because it was my organization, but it really, really was, and it just showed me how much – that's what our people need because there's also healing that takes place there. It's yeah. kind of therapeutic to an instant, you know, to have your opinion valued and respected. You to share everybody's energy with the Internet. There's, it's so cut and dry. And yeah. ironically, what you said is true. We had a book club that um, me and some ladies put together. We all worked out, so we all were readers. So we started reading the same book and had a book club. We had like 40 ladies. And ironically, like you're saying, the Internet and all that, there's still five of us left that still meet. But the rest of them fell off, you know, by the wayside. They stopped coming. But they're on Facebook. <laughs> but we're That's not right. together That's right. anymore. Well, you remember what Dr. King said. 
Dr. King said that he feared that with the advent of modern technology that it would destroy the relationships between people. He was so true about that. Facebook, the Twitters, the MySpace, instant messaging, the texting, although it is necessary to an extent, or beneficial rather, Dr. King's prophecy is coming true. A people who need to build relationships with each other more than everybody else, Africans, are now being driven away from each other more than everyone else by way of the technology. And the research shows that we make use of the technology more than everyone else. So we have to make sure that we push back against this wave of uh, media communication and start going back as much as we can because we won't be able to outdo it. We all use it. We all rely on it. But we also have to try to make sure that we're communicating and interacting with each other through traditional human means, face-to-face dialogue. We need more of that. And people want it. People are hungry for that. I saw it in Florida. I mean, I could tell our people were thirsty for a traditional discussion that wasn't on the Internet. So definitely going back to the study group and the think tank discussions, I think will really, really serve us well. And as I said earlier, our next meeting of the minds will be in uh, Detroit, Michigan, first weekend in March. And uh, hopefully we'll work our way over to California for that as well. But I'm definitely interested in getting out there um, as soon as we can make that happen, February or March, if the schedule allows. But I would like to get to Sacramento. I've been getting a lot of interest out of Sacramento for me to come that way. I will be in Oakland, but that's not till April, I think, uh, Oakland in April. But I would like to make Sacramento happen. Well, it's funny because a lot of people from here wouldn't go there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. They wouldn't. So, okay, but well, we will hook up later. And I thank yes. you for your information. I will be getting a book. Maybe that'll be a book club book. All of us can. Yes, get indeed. It. And that would be a good way to discuss it. But thank Definitely. you so much. And good night, thank you. Jill. Yes, give thanks, Brother P. And for the Cali family, just want to remind the Cali family, the Brother Black Dot will be in L.A. this Sunday at the um, Karaz Center. Okay, shout out to Siddiqui Bakari. The STP movement, right? Shout out to A.A. Rashid for the Black Dot will be in L.A. this Sunday. Okay? Uh, let's see. We got one more caller that we're going to be able to get to. Computer's giving me a little bit of problems. Rad, you still there? Yeah, I'm here. All right, it, it, it just um, unfroze. Let me go to Cora right. from the 585. Cora from the 585-303. Can you hear me? Peace, yes, we can. Peace, peace, brother Umar. How you doing? It's Hockey from Rochester, peace, New York. Peace, brother Hockey. All right. Me and, you, me and you talked when you and Ron Simeon came. We talked about... Uh, my book, the tribalism book. I, w- I just want to get your take on that. Taking, getting, you know, we always talk these huge concepts of, of of black togetherness and saving black people. When we talk about that, Facebook, you're talking conversations with people. They, you know, it's been my opinion that everybody has in their mind that we can save everybody at once. That, you know, because of the Messiah complex that we have, and because of the religion that we're be- we're pushed into, and because of you know media and stuff like that. 
movies and stuff like that. Everybody has that concept, you know. And I talked to you before about the corporate tribalism thing and making smaller groups that are more manageable that also do the same thing, which is, you know, give us back to a unity that's based on more than just our blood but on shared shared common interests and things and things of that nature. And I just want to get your opinion on that. That's all. Well, I definitely agree with what you're saying. You know, I think moving in small groups has an advantage, uh, but there's also a strength to large group psychology, too, that we don't want to lose. I don't think it's an either-or. I think both need to be complemented. I think there's, in certain aspects, we need to move in smaller groups, and I think with other aspects, we need to move in the large group, you know, because there's definitely a power that comes from the mass crowd. Most of our large organizations were built with the mass crowd, being the Garvey Movement, the Nation of Islam, and others. But I definitely uh, see your point, and I do agree, that as it relates to certain things like economics and things like that, you know, it would not hurt, you know, to move in smaller groups. In fact, we already have all the smaller groups or the organizations. They simply have to come together in a roundtable format and work together towards the same agenda. All we have to do is take all the organizations we have, and there's all our small groups moving in unity to accomplish the bigger goal. So, you know, our biggest issue is unity. In fact, unity is our only problem. Our we don't have issue. any other problem except unity. Everything, when we talk about solutions, we already know what the solution is. Okay? I mean, everybody has built businesses in this country. You know, look at the Chinese people. They come here in two weeks, and they got an import-export industry. So the solutions ain't the issue. We ain't got to come up with new solutions. You build right. a nation the same way you've always built a nation. Our problem is the unity. We lack the one thing everybody else got that makes it possible to implement the solutions. We don't have the unity. That is the only problem black people have. True indeed. True indeed. That is the only problem we have is the unity. Once you got the unity, you build your own schools. Once you got the unity, you stand up the white supremacy. Once you got the unity, you got your economics, you got your politics. Our only problem, literally, literally is unity, even in the conscious community. Our only problem is the unity. If we can exactly. get that unity, the rest is easy. The rest and I is think easy. I, I completely agree, and that's why I've been putting my focus on that. And and getting people to understand that economically, business-wise, coming together in proximity together, you know, I just think that the tribalism and bringing people together in that aspect so that they can start to move as one, reevaluate what we consider success, reevaluate what we consider power, or, or even giving somebody that kind of power, because a lot of brothers, they don't understand what power is, they don't understand, you know, know how to use power either, so... Yo, I completely agree. That's the missing piece of, the, of our puzzle. We have people who have sacrificed on our history. They've sacrificed to bring us back spirituality. But that's the one thing that we haven't really sacrificed in mass for us to get into. You know what I'm saying? Right. Hey, I agree. Definitely we want to say thank you to the caller. No doubt. No doubt, brother. Sir, Keep it up. Shout out to the brother Ross Simeon as well. All right. No doubt. Shout out Ross. 